What's going on, Trail and Ultra Runners? Welcome to another episode of the Coop Cast. I am your host, Jason Coop, and we've got a big one for you today. This podcast is clocking in at over three hours, and it is all about nutrition for ultra marathon training and nutrition for ultra marathon racing. On the podcast today, I have Nick Tiller, who is the author of this recent position paper that was written in the International Society of Sports Nutrition that's titled Nutritional Considerations for Single Stage Ultramarathon Training and Racing. It is a big one. It's got 197 cited papers in it and 25 authors. You can imagine the collective brain power of all those people put together in the same virtual room to come up with one position stand. And I remember when I initially found, uh, when I came across this paper, I actually wrote a summary for it uh, on the CTS website that we will link to in the show notes. But that 500 word article or 1500 word article is really not going to do it justice. We spend the next three hours trying to do it justice and not only going over aspects of the paper itself, which you guys should actually go out and read. We not only go over the aspects of the paper itself, but we really dive kind of behind it and use our own ultramarathon experience to kind of peel back the research curtain a little bit and get into some practical advice for all of the listeners out there. I've been trying to get this podcast on tap for a very long time. We were originally supposed to meet out in California where Nick is a researcher in exercise physiology and respiratory medicine at UCLA. We were initially supposed to meet out there, but then once the COVID-19 pandemic came around, he ended up going back to the UK and then we went back and forth for a while. And finally we, we decided that we would record this podcast remotely because we were just so enthusiastic about, um, uh, about getting it done. Uh, in his day-to-day life, Nick is not only a ultramarathon runner, but he holds a master's and a doctoral degree in human applied physiology and is an accredited physiologist with the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, or BASES. And I've had a lot of Brits on the podcast recently. I don't know what's up with that exactly, but he's a phenomenal researcher and he also puts his research where uh, into a practical perspective when he goes out and races ultramarathons, which we talk about a lot in the podcast. So I had a ton of fun with it and I hope you guys get a lot of information out of this particular podcast. We did record it remotely me being in Colorado and him being in the UK. And we did have some microphone troubles, which my incredible post-production and editing assistant, Michael Carson, tried to scrub out as much as possible, but there's still, there's still going to be some, you know, blips and blops here and there. It's worth it though. You guys can put up with it. The information should stand on its own two feet. So without any further ado, here is everything that you need to know about ultramarathon nutrition as it relates to training and racing, a conversation that I had with Nick Tiller. I've always found, uh, you know, uh, researchers that end up doing either not even meta-analysis, but more position papers. It's always an interesting proposition because you're not at, you're not like gathering a group of subjects and bringing them in for an initial evaluation and then doing some intervention with them and then reporting the results. 
you're taking a lot of what's out there and I've always almost likened it to what I do in coaching where we're taking all these different pieces of, of information and we're kind of like alchemizing it into one, you know, one kind of consensus. So before we like very classically, like go for the jugular here, um, how, how did this consensus paper from your perspective, like all come to light? Yeah, it was, it was a fairly embryonic process. I have been running ultra ultra marathon for a long time, well over a decade now. And and I was running marathons for about a decade before that. And obviously was very up on the literature. And I'm an exercise physiologist by profession, but I have a deep and active interest in nutrition. And I was looking for nutrition resources or physiology and nutrition resources specific to ultra marathon and found a bunch of review articles on Ironman triathlon, adventure racing and race walking and everything except and ultra endurance exercise in general which i found a bit a bit of a misnomer because ultra endurance exercise is a very broad term i don't know how you can possibly prescribe recommendations for something so broad but there was nothing specific to ultra marathon there were a couple of papers that had that had attempted this but but there was no kind of one-stop resource for runners and coaches and medical director, uh, race directors and medics who were overseeing these kinds of events. And so I decided to write one. And, um, and it was very much at the time, it was, it was my effort to try and bridge the gap between some of the science that is reported in academic literature and the stuff that is applied in the real world. Because as, as a runner myself, I knew that there wasn't this kind of one central resource that people could look to. So I started off writing a review article on the physiology and nutrition of ultramarathon, mainly just because I love writing and, I'm, and it's something that I'm very passionate about and realized that, that, is, that the physiology and nutrition of ultramarathon is it's way too big for one paper. So I split them in two and, started, <laughs> and focused on the, the nutrition stuff and wrote a review article that I anticipated would get published in somewhere like sports medicine. Somewhere that publishes a lot of reviews. Now, as I said, I'm not a sports nutritionist by profession, so I brought in a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Justin Roberts from Anglia Ruskin University, and I kind of was looking to him just to make sure that the nutritional recommendations were as scientifically robust as they could be. It was a bit of a fail-safe for me, and he suggested that we turn it into a position stand for the ISSN. We contacted the editor and it kind of snowballed from there. And then 23 other authors later and about a, <laughs> at about a year's worth of writing and it, and it was ready to go just like that. <laughs> so um, exactly. That, you know, yeah, exactly. I was really like pleased with, with the outcome. It's, it's as robust. It's the paper that I wanted to write. It's very academically rigorous, but also I hope it kind of goes some way to bridging the gap between the, the science and the applied stuff. Well, I can tell you first off to the rigor of it, you mentioned 23 authors, but also 197 individual papers that are cited in yeah. this review paper. I mean, that's a lot. That's an enormous amount of reading just in itself. I'm surprised that you got it done in a year, first off, to hear that time frame. And mm. I, I'm, I'm kind of getting the sense from you that there's another consensus a consensus type paper that might be in the works or coming down the pipeline that's specific to the physiology of ultramarathon running? 
Yeah, and I and I focus because my specialism is is cardiopulmonary physiology. So the lab that I work at is a, is a very um, famous respiratory lab, and I'm just about to uh, the papers in review at the moment. Uh, um, about to publish this paper on the on the cardiopulmonary or the, or the respiratory and cardiovascular implications of ultramarathon running, and um, co-authored that with some experts in the field. And um, I think that's going to add another, you know, um, answer a lot of unknowns about ultramarathon as well. So that's kind of in the pipeline. But um, yeah, th there's there's a lot more work that needs to be done in this. There's so much we don't know. And, and the main thing, and, and without going off on a tangent, but the main thing that, that that's coming out of this, this, the paper that's in review at the moment is that there are certain, obviously we get we get certain adaptations, but certain maladaptations with long-term participation in ultramarathon. And we're getting, there's enough data now to suggest that it, it might not be good for you to be running, you know, 100 mile races every six months for, for 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, that's pretty intuitive. Um, but it, but nobody's really been able to quantify what the long-term effect of actual racing is. There's lots of data on people who exercise a lot and some new research from Ben Levine's lab looking at people who exercise for 30, 40 hours per week, showing that they have no increased risk of cardiovascular disease and no, no further increased risk of mortality. But what we can't do is actually quantify what the implications of periodic racing actually are because you can exercise for three four hours a day that doesn't subject you to the same physiological stress as running a 24-hour ultramarathon twice a year for example and nobody's really able to quantify what the long-term effects of that are but yeah a lot more work needs to be done i can't wait for it to come out and I mean, a lot of the, a lot of what you have gone through in terms of you're curious about the research as, as it relates to ultramarathon, there's not a lot of research out there. I mean, that is very analogous to what I initially went through as a coach when I started working with ultramarathon athletes, because when I, I before I started working with ultra athletes, I worked with runners and triathletes and cyclists and things like that. And there was a tremendous body of literature that we could draw from to inform coaching practice. But when I started working with ultra runners in kind of the early 2000s, just to kind of timestamp it a little bit, I had the, I, I used that same process, or I tried to use that same process of looking at the literature, trying to figure out what's going on, using that to inform my practice with athletes. When I transitioned that process into ultra running, it was just, there was this big black hole there. And I was like, well, where do I, you know, I don't, this one component that I leaned on, which was the research component for other athletes, it just wasn't there. And I had to make extrapolations from the triathlon literature, the cycling literature, and even stuff from the military to help inform practice. So to see it start to come around to the point where it is now, where there are some position stands, there's more, there's an overall bigger body of literature to work with. To, for for me has been um, for for me has been really interesting to see because I I've seen it from where it literally has started from very very little so I'm very appreciative to researchers like yourself that have worked so hard to bring these things to light. I'm just very passionate about about the area and I know that there's a a dearth of literature, particularly review papers and position stands, that that kind of can summarize this yeah. stuff and and help with the translation to yeah. mainstream. 
Um, you know, it, it's it's difficult because it's you, you can't really replicate the conditions of ultra marathon or ultra endurance exercise in the lab. And most of the good mechanistic research is done in a lab environment because that's where all the expensive kit is. And field studies are just not quite the same because, by definition, you're out. You know, you're outside of the lab. You can't transport your expensive kit. And ultra marathon runners tend to be, uh, well, they're they're less happy to give up their time and risk damaging their race performance to come and give blood samples yep. or or go and do maximal testing before their race, which is understandable. But uh, researchers are now making strides in that area, taking time and um, a little bit of monetary investment as well to actually get some kit out in the field and you know um, the literature is now starting to yep. trickle out okay so here's what we're going to do super excited I'm, yeah. I'm really i'm really psyched for this conversation we're going to take this paper that you wrote and we're going to use it as a conversation outline and what we're going to try to do is dissect the paper kind of like piece by piece and not only discuss what you illuminated through the paper itself, but also kind of take away both you and my practical takeaway for athletes on each one of these pieces. Because you're a runner, you're an ultra runner yourself. And as you now have the scope of, when you come up with these papers, <clears throat> there's a lot that you that you can that you have to leave out. But just because you leave it out doesn't mean that you can't make a reasonable extension of the research or a reasonable interpretation of the research in order to kind of better inform athletes on a day-to-day basis. So I want to go through each piece and take away the research findings and then also what those mean practically for any athlete, inclusive of ourselves. And we're going to roughly divide this conversation into the two pieces that the paper is divided up up into, and that's nutrition to support ultramarathon training. We'll take that first off, and then nutrition to support ultramarathon racing as a second part. Cool. All, All right. right, sounds good. Let's let's go for the jugular. Let's dive right in. Let's what so? What are the key takeaways for ultramarathon athletes to support their day to day training habits? Well, the, the it, it's no coincidence that the first thing we talk about in the paper is meeting calorific demands because f- far and away the the biggest challenge that ultramarathon runners will come up against in training is getting enough calories in and you know there, there's broad variability in terms of the weekly weekly mileage for an individual because obviously it depends what race they're training for it depends what standard they're they're um they're training at but getting enough calories is is far and away the hardest thing to do. So that's the first thing that we that we spoke about in the paper. And then we, you know, after that we we go on and talk about monitoring hydration status and we go into kind of the minutiae of looking at carbohydrate recommendations and protein. But but calories first and foremost is the main one. And how this whole this whole concept of calories in, calories out, it has been repeated ad nauseum amongst researchers and athletes and, e- and even coaches you need to you need to fuel for the work required is a common theme that uh, that we use you need to eat enough to match your caloric demands and things like that but in practice 
that's an extremely hard thing to for an athlete to actually accomplish and it's hard for it's it's it, it's incredibly difficult for three variables the first two of which have nothing to do with ultra marathon running tracking calories in number 1 and tracking calories out for anybody even a, a normal athlete is horrifically inaccurate Anytime you're trying to use one of the calorie, you know, tracking apps or the food logging apps or things like that, like the registered dietitians out in the field, they just pull their hair out trying to make sense of those just because of like, it, okay, is that apple 100 calories or 120 calories? That doesn't seem like a lot, but it's 20%. And then you multiply that by every single food item. And then you get this just, I, I describe it as a horrific level of inaccuracy because it really is. Those are the first two things. But the third thing that makes this equation incredibly complicated for uh, ultramarathon athletes is the fact that their caloric needs, the calorie inside of the equation, fluctuate so dramatically based on the volume. So they could have a rest day and need 2,000 calories, 2,200 calories or something like that. Or they could have a really big long run and need four, five, 6,000 calories, three times that in one single day. And so for, from an athlete's perspective, trying to create that caloric match each and every day becomes something rather problematic. So like, what are the, what are the, like the practical implementations of actually meeting this top line calorie level? Can we, can we kind of take away from this for athletes? Yeah. And you've kind of alluded to it already is, is this need for periodizing our nutrition programs because we spend so much time periodizing our training, right? We have a particular race that we're training for or a couple of races throughout the season. And we might follow a, a micro or a macro cycle or ideally both. If you're an Olympic athlete, you have a, you have a four year macro cycle. Um, and we spend so much time planning our training regimen to make sure we peak for the right time we need to be doing the same with our nutritional intake as well. So if, if you have a, a, a large increase in weekly training mileage, and again, you know, your weekly training mileage should go up and up and up. And then every five or sixth week, we should be having a kind of an easier week. Ideally, a lot of people don't do it, but you don't, you, it's training doesn't get you fitter. It's recovering from training that gets you fitter. And this is something that a lot of people forget. Mm -hmm. So we've got to periodize our nutrition congruent with our training. So if you're having a rest day, sure, you're going to need fewer calories. If you're having, if you're training twice in a day, which a lot of athletes do, particularly elite, uh, elite level athletes that will be training at least twice a day, then you need a higher calorie intake. And then when you dig a little bit deeper down into that, then you've got to periodize your macronutrient intake. So I'm sure we'll get into it shortly, but the importance of manipulating your carbohydrate intake congruent with your training needs is going to be a really important part of getting the endurance adaptations that you need from training. So if you're having a, a, an easier day or perhaps your mileage is lower or the intensity of your training sessions is going to be all slow and steady, you're probably not going to need quite as much carbohydrate as if you're doing intervals or fart leg or something higher intensity, where you're going to be burning through carbohydrate at a faster rate. Yeah, you're right. We'll get into the specific carbohydrate protein uh, and fat demands and how those can be periodized. But let's stay on the high level calories for just one more second, because I really think that sometimes this, sometimes the macronutrient periodization, okay, I'm going to switch from 
65% carbohydrate to 60% carbohydrate. Like a lot of that new nuance kind of, it, it, it's just, it's too granular for a lot of athletes to practically, uh, implement the, the, one of the first things that I always try to get athletes focused on is try to educate them on how many calories they actually, how many calories do they actually need from the exercise that they're, that they're doing? And there are all these activity apps out there. This is a <laughs> failure of audio. I'm, I'm, I'm showing Nick my Garmin watch right now that will give us, and there's, there's one on the other end of the, on the other end of the line. Uh, there are all these activity apps and wearable devices that will try to estimate your caloric range. And as we now know, now that we've kind of looked back on these calculations, they're once again, wildly inaccurate. And I think that leads athletes to kind of a false sense of security. I, I, I take athletes through a really simple way of determining this that I wanted to kind of get your, get your take on. We know that the caloric expenditure in running in almost all circumstances can kind of be, can, can, can kind of be boiled down to the distance that the athlete runs and how much they weigh and in a flat level condition. And we use this, we use this kind of universal equation that for every kilometer you run, the caloric expenditure for that kilometer can be can be expressed in terms of the kilo, the kilograms that you weigh. So if you're a 70 kilogram individual and you run, which is a normal size male most of the time, 70 kilogram individual, you run one kilometer, that one kilometer on flat level terrain, that one kilometer is going to take ru- like roughly 70 kcals, roughly or 70 calories. Mm-hmm. You run 10K, 70, 700 calories. And So the exercise I take my athletes through, since we know their body weight, I just have them go and do a normal 10 K run at a normal endurance pace. And we see, and we work the math out to see what their caloric expenditure is per unit time based on that 10 K. So they weigh 60 kilograms, they run 10 K that's going to take them, you know, 600 calories worth of energy. And let's just say, just to make the math easy for me, that that 10 K took an hour. We now know that when they go out and do a normal endurance run, that they're going to be burning about 600 calories an hour in that, in that particular circumstance. Once you add in the variability of hills, uphill, downhill, interval training, and things like that, I think when you, I, this is a, this is a, just from observational data that I have, when you look at it on the course of days and weeks and months, it really doesn't change that much irrespective of the terrain that you're running on or when you're incorporating intervals. Yeah. Maybe it's like 1.05 kilocalories per kilogram, or maybe it's like 0.95, but once you average it all out, it, it, it gets you in the ballpark. And so I use that the utility that I use that with is it sets a baseline for you go out on a two hour run, doesn't matter hills, flats, whatever. And you're going to be roughly burning in that last example that I mentioned 1200 calories. And so now we need to look at 1200 calories of food in addition to whatever you need, whatever you're eating for the day. That's kind of how I've boiled it out, but I don't know if there's a better or more reasonable way to look at this total calorie equation for an athlete. Yeah, so there, there are very sophisticated ways that we can look at this, which I'm, I'm sure 
you and your listeners <laughs> will be at least familiar with, but, yeah. but it depends if you have access to the kit, right? So if you, if you have access to a physiology lab or if you work in one, or if you, if you know, if you, if you've got a buddy that works in an exercise physiology lab, then, you know, ask them to, to do you a favor and get, and, and take you into the lab because we, we can measure calorie expenditure. So we can measure resting metabolic rate very accurately and we can see how many calories you're, you're burning when you're supine, when you're sitting upright. We can measure how many calories you're burning at different running speeds. Obviously, it depends. It's going to depend on all sorts of things, some of which you mentioned, whether you're male or female, your your body mass, your body fat percentage, what running speed or velocity you're you're working at. But we can quantify all of these things very, very closely. You just need a device to measure gas exchange, and you can look at what we call RER, respiratory exchange ratio, and we, and we can get some a pretty accurate understanding of how many calories you're burning in any given instance. But most people don't have access to that kit, which is which is fine. So we have to make some assumptions, and the 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 strategy that that you just talked through is is more than good enough you know i i'm i'm a big fan of heart rate monitors because even though they do make a lot of assumptions and you know that they're not going to be super accurate they do exactly the same thing they get you in a ballpark so most heart rate monitors get you to enter what your stature is what your mass is they can record if you have something that's sophisticated enough it can record your running speed so based on all these different assumptions, it can give you an estimation of how many calories you're burning in a given run. And some athletes don't like wearing heart rate monitors, but but I think, you know, for me personally, data is knowledge. So the more information you have, the better. There's there's an argument, you know, we could talk about that. That's a different podcast perhaps, but, but um, I like having the data. So if you can just get in the right ballpark, then you can use that to inform your nutritional strategies. Yeah, and I I think the big the the thing to emphasize there is ballpark. Mm. You're never going to get it exactly precise when you're out in the field because of all the other confounding factors. You can't measure it. There there are a lot of other things that that'll impact caloric expenditure. But the 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 drive home message for athletes, and you really you 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 explain this to 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 a really good extent in Table Two in the paper, which showed male and female athletes at different body weights that are running at different speeds and how different their caloric requirements were for an hour of uh, for an hour of activity. And I think to my earlier point, because ultramarathon training inevitably involves these really high caloric expenditure days, two, three hours out on the run, that can subsequently be followed by low caloric expenditure days where it's, you know, an hour or 30 minute recovery run or something like that, because those calorie requirements are so different. I think driving home the point that you are going to have those two extremes first to an athlete that might vary as much as 4,000 calories one day, 2,000 calories the next, right? 50% reduction right there. Driving home those things to hit these caloric requirements first is the big point. And then trying to figure out what each individual run means from a caloric standpoint is the second piece. And whether you use a simple equation like I use and you just find out your caloric rate or you're using a heart rate monitor, that can help you kind of more fine tune it. Yeah, and the, the table to which you're referring in, in the paper, it's table two. And for anyone who hasn't got the paper in front of them, it, it's it's basically we've, we've separated it into two categories, male and female. 
the females have two kind of extremes, quote unquote, of, of body mass that you might typically see in an ultramarathon, 50 to 70 kilos. Males, it might be 65 to 85. And then we've got three different running velocities and estimated daily caloric requirements. And that, that table took a long time to pull together because the, the title of the table is Estimated Daily Caloric Requirements. Right. And we based the table on a whole bunch of different data. It's almost like we, we did a mini review and looked at all of the data on estimated calorie expenditure in endurance runners. And then we pulled all of that together and then came up with our own kind of macro estimation based on the pre-existing literature. So it's all estimation. And, you know, one of the key take-home messages, I'm sure, when, when we get to the end of this discussion will be everyone is different. So it's about trying to figure out what your individual needs are, what your metabolic needs are, and how you can go your your go as far as you can to estimating what they are but you know just to just you know one, one other thing that's important to highlight is we take a step back and kind of zoom out on all of this kind of stuff you can look at individual caloric requirements but ultimately we can you can look at the symptoms of whether of what happens when you are meeting or not meeting your caloric requirements so if you're monitoring in the long term what's happening to your body mass are you having fluctuations in in your weight is your weight going up or down if you're losing weight then that would suggest that you're probably not meeting your caloric requirements that may be something that is targeted or it may be inadvertent you can think about what your energy levels are you able to train at a high intensity are you more or less susceptible to picking up infections and you know colds and flus that would suggest that you're, you're immunocompromised and all of these things will you know a bit of detective work is all that's needed. Maybe your nutrition is not sufficient for your needs if any of these things happen. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Nick. So you don't know this, but I'll enlighten you right now. You're the third person this week, the third person from the UK this week, in fact, that I have had yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. And the, the, other two, right. uh, the other two you'll be familiar with is Glenn Davison and Craig Sale. So we're talking about immune function yeah. and bone health. You're the third person this week that said the key to whatever we're talking about. <laughs> and in their, and in their uh, cases, it's immune function and bone health. And by the time this podcast is released, those two previous podcasts will, will be released so that listeners can check those out as well. The key to whatever we're talking about, the first key, the big rock, the big thing to, fi to, to fixate on is total energy availability. And it rings true in when we talk about ultramarathon running from a performance perspective, from a global piece is you gotta get the calories right first before we focus on the macronutrient composition or any other subset of nutrition that we're talking about. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's, if you're not yeah. getting your calories right, then nothing, everything else falls by the wayside anyway. So this yeah. is, this is your first pot of call for sure. Particularly yeah. for an ultra runner so, when your calorie expenditure is going to be so high. So high. I know that that's, it's, it's confounding and I don't, it's, it's hard to come up with another sport example where that, high-low discrepancy and total uh, total energy needs actually exists from a day-to-day -day training perspective. It's really, really hard to find that. You might find that in some like Olympic level, like decathletes who are just training like, you know, four hours a day or something like that because they've got to do all the events. But ultramarathon is really, really unique in that, um, uh, in that aspect. So first thing is get your calories right. Sure. Now let's move on to the macronutrient distribution, carbohydrates, protein, and fat. What does the consensus of the literature say about 
how we can manipulate those variables to support ultramarathon training. And this is something that, that we labored over when writing the paper, not because we didn't know what the recommendations should be, but I was more concerned with the narrative, with the message that we were conveying, because the literature overwhelmingly supports a relatively high carbohydrate diet. Okay. That there is, that we can go back and forth on this, and, and some people will suggest low carbohydrate diets and ketogenic diets and so forth. But if you look at the bulk of the literature for, for individuals who are training for ultramarathon or any other endurance sport who have a relatively high weekly mileage, you need at least 60% of your energy intake to come from carbohydrates. Now, how you manipulate that and how you periodize that congruent with your training is the really tricky part because even though carbohydrate is going to be a really important part of your nutritional intake, there are a couple of things to consider. Well, firstly, a lot of people will train on very low carbohydrate diets and will swear by them. The reality is that the athletes who can be successful following a very, a very low carbohydrate diet are actually in the minority. Most people will need a higher carbohydrate intake. The other thing is that there is a lot of really good literature showing that if you I hesitate to use the word restrict, but I'll use it for now and I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a caveat in shortly. If you restrict your carbohydrate intake, then you can promote the endurance adaptation because you trigger certain cell signaling pathways like AMP kinase, which are really important for augmenting the endurance response. But if you train in a chronically glycogen depleted state, then there's again, plenty of good literature on this. Mike Gleason has published a bunch of stuff on uh, in, in immune dysfunction, for example, if you train for prolonged periods without taking calories or if you're chronically glycogen depleted, then it increases your susceptibility for getting colds and flus. Uh, it can compromise your ability to recover. It's going to impact on your ability to train at a high intensity. So there's this really tricky balance between moderating your carbohydrates enough to augment your endurance response getting enough carbohydrate to make sure that you're not getting perpetually injured and picking up infections that are going to keep you away from training. And that's a really tricky thing. That's a really hard thing to do because you've got to know your body really right. well. And what I've, so what I've, what I have always mentioned about those low carbohydrate types of strategies is yes, we can always get the manipulation in the lab you restrict carbohydrates or you reduce the amount of carbohydrates that an athlete is taking in to whatever extent or however you're going to, to restrict and or manipulate them. And your body's going to compensate. I mean, your body's smart. It's going to figure out a way to, you know, create cell signaling and create structures in order to accommodate for that reduced macronutrient availability. Absolutely. But there are compromises to that, just like anything else, just like there are compromises whenever you are in a higher carbohydrate state. And sometimes those compromises aren't, in fact, worth the outcome of being a better fat burner or having all of your fat burning capabilities upregulated. But you mentioned that, so, so before we dive into the weeds too, too quickly here, let's still, let's still kind of like set the table on this macronutrient uh, uh, on the, on the macronutrient side of things. So what the literature recommends over, and you said overwhelmingly is that ultramarathon athletes would be best served if roughly 60% of their calories are derived from carbohydrates. 
and how you get to that 60% can actually vary. I mean, that 60%, I, I, at least when I'm reading it, I'm, I'm interpreting it, I'm interpreting it as an overall number. For some reason, you could calculate the total amount of calories over a nine month training period and break them down via macronutrient. 60% of them would be carbohydrates, but there is some allowance there to vary it within certain periods or even within certain days such that you want to take advantage of the situation that's going on. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the idea is that if, if you can manipulate your nutritional strategy or, or your carbohydrate intake so that you are doing the majority of your slow, steady sessions, well, you know, you can call them whatever you like, Ste steady sessions, endurance sessions, fat burning sessions, whatever you want to call them, in a relatively, I wouldn't say glycogen depleted, but not fully repleted state then you're going to augment the response. And then if you're going to take in carbohydrate, take it in after the run. And we talk in the paper, yep. you know, I, 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 again, went to pains to make sure that rather than use the word carbohydrate restriction, I prefer the term carbohydrate moderation so that you're carefully moderating your carbs congruent with your training load rather than just restricting carbohydrate outright because, you know, the danger is that you make a recommendation like that and runners take it to heart, particularly if they have this pre-existing belief that low carbohydrate diets are the way to go. They'll just cut out carbs altogether and right. acutely they'll they'll probably be able to manage on that for maybe a week or a couple of weeks and then they'll then they'll crash and burn, you know, um, so acutely maybe you'll 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 be able to manage it. But in the long, it's not a sustainable strategy. Well, ultra marathoners are, are just notorious for taking this advice of if a pinch of something is good, a pound of it is better. And a kilogram is the best thing, you know, on the face of the planet. <laughs> and that goes with that, that goes with, with calories and things having to do with nutrition to, to, to a big extent. And you're absolutely right. that when people look at either the title headline or the sexy headline that kind of comes out in the lay literature that says, oh, well, restricting carbohydrate has XYZ benefit, though a lot of ultra runners and triathletes do this too, but we'll, we'll stick with ultra runners now. A lot of ultra runners will look at that and go, oh, well, if I restrict it by whatever, 10% or for one session or whatever it is, is good. If I do 10 times that, it must be 10 times better. And which, what you're saying and what we're trying to emphasize is, is that there, that dose response goes from positive to negative pretty quickly once you start to induce further and further restriction. Yeah, there's a very fine line. That's, and I think that's a really key message to get across. There's a very fine line between getting enough carbohydrate to sustain your training and not getting enough to recover properly. I think ultimately, if if you're training fairly seriously and your mileage is high enough, it doesn't matter how much you eat, you're gonna be relative, you're gonna be depleted to some extent anyway. You know, it takes a special kind of someone who can be training for an ultra marathon and put on weight. You know, I, I mean, I, I know a couple of people that have managed it, but it's pretty rare, you know. If your mileage is high enough, yeah. You're going to lose weight so which that suggests that you are your calorie intake is not sufficient anyway yep. well so let's let's um, let's break this let's break this carbohydrate proposition down because there's a lot of athletes that are fixated on this and whenever i produce a podcast that has 
optimize fat metabolism in it or ketogenic diets or high carb, low fat or high fat, low carb, something to do with that. Those are the ones that are guaranteed to get like the most hits, especially in the ultramarathon world, because it is, it, it is such a hot topic. So I want to stay in these waters a little bit. And I think maybe a way that we can, uh, that we can take this conversation is there's kind of two, there's like two ways that you could potentially manipulate training and diet to push this fat oxidation phenotype. One way is the low carb, high fat approach. So overall, globally, in terms of macronutrient content, you're just taking in less carbohydrates and more fat. And then therefore, as a byproduct of all of that macronutrient intake or that macronutrient distribution, all of your fat oxidizing uh, capabilities are upregulated. The other way is to look at specific, and this is what we were alluding to earlier, really specific um, low carbohydrate availability sessions. And kind of the two, the two flavors of those that have kind of emerged is a fasted session. So you're going out and doing a normal, uh, during a, doing a normal run in a fasted state. So you have low carbohydrate availability to kind of start out with. And the second one is, is to induce low carbohydrate availability via two back to back or two sessions that are in the same day. So you go out in the morning, you do a session of intervals, you intentionally don't kind of top off the glycogen stores, uh, 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 as much as you normally would. And then you go into another endurance session with slightly reduced, uh, carbohydrate, uh, uh availability. I think it's important to separate those, those two, the, the whole macronutrient, the low carb, high fat strategies versus the workout strategies because they have much different implications. So let's take the latter first, these two flavors of workouts, training in a fasted state, and then doing some sort of back-to-back session. Um, First off, I explained a little bit, but from the research that you gathered, how practically, how would athletes practically implement these, uh, these low carbohydrate availability types of sessions? Yeah, so in, in practical terms, and again, it, they've got to be practiced tentatively until you've been running long enough so that you know your body. But you're going to go and train in a fasted state. Let's say, you, you know, a lot of athletes will anchor their week around a you know, one particular session that is that is particularly long. So let's say it's a Sunday morning run and you get up at, if you're enthusiastic, you get up at 7 a.m. and you get out the door and you're going to go and run for... You know, if you're starting off, you might only go and run for an hour. But if you're more, if you're more advanced, you might go and run for two, three, four hours and, and cover anywhere between 15, 20, 25 miles, whatever it is that you're doing. The idea would be to get up on a, on a, in a fasted state. And the research shows that you can become anywhere between 50 and 80 percent glycogen depleted following your overnight fast. And you get up and you go and run without taking breakfast, without taking uh, anything that might constitute that without taking any calories. So you're not putting milk or sugar in your tea or your coffee. If you want to have, you know, black coffee for the caffeine, then that's, that's slightly different. That again, that maybe that's another conversation, but the idea is you go, but out, you get up and go. Say again, you get up and you go, you get up that's and you go. Yeah. I, ideally. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and this is important because if you're if you're moderately glycogen depleted, if you're completely glycogen depleted, you're not going to run and you shouldn't be running. But if you're moderately depleted, then we trigger these AMPK cell signaling pathways. And in the long term, we're, we're 
augmenting fat oxidation rates. We're increasing our ability to mobilize and optimize fats. We're, we're encouraging mitochondrial biogenesis. All of these really important things that we consider are really crucial for, in, for the endurance adaptation. And the idea is that you should avoid taking in calories for at least an hour or two of your slow steady state run. Now you don't want to go out and run for three or four hours without taking calories because you're going to come back from your run. You're going to be, you're going to be even more depleted and that's going to have carryover effects for your next session. And that might impact your training for the whole rest of the week, unless you're a particularly high level runner and you're, you know, you're cranking out hundreds of miles a week for most people going out and running for two hours, say, without taking in calories is more than sufficient. Then maybe before you become completely depleted, you start taking in some carbohydrates, you start taking in some calories. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, but you know, if, if a little bit of something is good, then a whole lot more must be better. Well, you know, it's good to go out and train on an empty <laughs> stomach, but if you go out and train for four or five hours on an empty stomach, you're gonna pay for it at some point. So that's one strategy. The other strategy as you've mentioned is training back-to-back -back sessions. And even though the mechanism is slightly different, it still amounts to the same thing. You're training your second session in a moderately glycogen depleted state. So you're augmenting the endurance adaptation that way. And the key piece with both of these is that the run, the training activity that you're doing and the glycogen depleted state, and I'm being very deliberate, like with the with with my wording right now because it's glycogen depleted not com not completely depleted partially depleted the run that you're doing in that depleted state is not that hard it's a moderate to low intensity session what we would call an endurance run for 60 or 90 minutes it's not intervals it's not a four-hour run it's something that's completely reasonable and I I am not I am not the biggest I'll just state it right now I am not the biggest advocate for a lot of these low carbohydrate types of strategies particularly because the cost benefit starts to fall out of balance but when you're doing it in a really smart way and in this case you're taking your lower priority sessions or your lower intensity sessions or the sessions that don't cost as much right the cost side of the equation when you're trying to manipulate these variables through uh, 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 through those types of activities and the cost isn't that high, then I kind of look at it and go, okay, that's not, the, that's not the worst thing in the world. Absent of anything else, you have a perfectly healthy athlete, they're not susceptible to injury, they're not susceptible to any other illness, you're not markedly increasing their training load and things like that. That's where I would fall towards these types of strategies because you're reducing the risk and all of those other all of those other areas. That's where I take it from a practical perspective is make sure that the sessions that you're doing with lower carbohydrate availability are the easier ones, the more moderate ones, and make sure that there are no other confounding factors like injury and or illness. Yeah, I, I reinforce that 100%. And it's important to think about the intensity of your session. You shouldn't be doing these sessions, you know, not all of your sessions should be strategize this way you got to think about you go and do a slow steady session you're working yeah. well below your lactate threshold you know this is a low intensity run this is kind of your ultra marathon pace you know this is very very slow it's very easy you're going to be burning a lot more fat than you would normally do it this is not even marathon pace anytime you you shift your your running yeah. speed or your work rate above your lactate threshold you start to burn through a lot more carbohydrate you try going and doing an interval session 
or any kind of speed work when you're even moderately glycogen depleted, you will feel it and your work rate will suffer and you'll feel like crap. But these are absolutely, as you said, right. these are slow sessions, right. Right. easy, very steady. You should be able to have a conversation with the person next to you or, you know, talk to yourself if you have to. If, if you're if you're breathing hard, then you're, the intensity is too high. It's a very it's a slow, steady session. Those are the only sessions that work when you're in this kind of glycogen, moderately glycogen depleted yep. state. Yep. Yep. To totally reasonable strategy. I have no issue with that. I think that sometimes the amount of benefit that the athlete can actually extract from that. Another reason that I, I kind of stumble, that I stumble over giving athletes this particular prescription is sometimes the upside, even when you mitigate the risk on the downside, sometimes the upside, it's like, well, they're just going to get that upside by training anyway. So why would, why, why would I go and artificially manipulate these variables? I think that that's, we, we've gotten in the weeds for this too much, but I think suffice it to say that some low carbohydrate availability training in a state where it's very low risk could be a reasonable strategy. There are all the caveats that I can throw into <laughs> one single into one single statement. Um, to, to, totally true. Let, let's move on to like the 800 pound gorilla in the ultramarathon nutrition world. And this is low fat, high carbohydrate, and ketogenic diets. I hate to lump them into the same category, but we kind of have to just from like a time perspective. And I also think that from a practical perspective, a lot of the lessons uh, that are learned, one of the reasons this is an 800 pound gorilla in the room is, is something that you just mentioned, is that there is a good amount of anecdotal evidence of case studies that we can look at for ultramarathon runners that have been very successful, even at the elite level, utilizing a very low carbohydrate approach, a high fat approach, and or a ketogenic approach, and, and some combination of those kind of throughout their training. Now, they're few and far between. I agree with you there, that if we look at the entire context of elite performance, the ones that have used ketogenic and low carbohydrate types of strategies are, are, are few and far between. But they're out there and they get a lot of, they get a lot of attention and it's at least worth noting. That's one of the, that's one of the things that always confounds the literature when you're trying to stylize it is that you're always going to find these anomalous, you know, anomalous athletes and anomalous variables that you can't really put into context. So why don't you kind of go through and and you mentioned that you came to the consensus that the overwhelming amount of literature supported a higher carbohydrate diet, which is around 60% carbs. But I'm sure this was some point of, it, if not contention, at least consternation amongst the group of uh, the group of scientists that you had looking at it. So why don't you start to start to paint that picture in terms of what those recommendations started to look and it, like? And it is, I mean, it's quite a gorilla. It's, it's such a divisive issue. And, uh, you know, people tend to sit very, very distinctly on one side of the fence or the other. And it's, it's almost a, a position that is characterized by all the classic symptoms of ideology. You know, you, you ascribe to one, one side or the other. Um, so, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably sit on, end up sitting on the fence in terms of, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put my flag in the ground one way or another, other than to just say, well, this is what, this is what the literature says. And that there, there is, 
there is emerging data on the use of ketogenic diets in in uh, endurance exercise. And what we summarized in the paper was, and again, we spent a lot of time thinking about this, and there are 25 authors on the paper. Everybody agrees by consensus statement on this, that there's some interesting preliminary data. The good studies that show that you can, that you can augment fatty acid oxidation rates mostly come from rodent studies, so in rats and mice. There are a couple of studies showing that, that a ketogenic diet can enhance fat oxidation rates in runners, but there is nothing or, or very little specific to ultramarathon. And for a position stand, there is simply not enough research at the moment to be advocating a ketogenic diet for an ultramarathon runner. The problem that we have, and this is a, a comment on the contemporary culture as a whole, is that sensationalist headlines, well, sensationalist news get, grabs the headlines. You know, good good science sneaks under the radar because it's not exciting, it's right. not sexy, it's not interesting. The the headline grabbing news are the studies that stick out. You know, it's it's the um, it's it's the vegan athlete or it's the the keto athlete who you know goes in and puts on an impressive performance in the race, despite the fact that that, that vegan endurance runners and, and right. keto athletes are actually in the minority. And that that's not to say that that you can't be an excellent athlete. And be vegan, or or be a keto athlete, or, um, or or whatever, because obviously there are there are lots of examples of this, and um, again, that that's that, that that's clear for everyone to see. But when we look at the literature, there is simply not enough data available to advocate ketogenic diets for ultra endurance sport. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and and I think the the one of the key things that you mentioned there is that this is a position stand that has to incorporate all of the available literature, not just one or two or three pieces that can advocate for having a ketogenic diet or having a low uh, a low carb diet. But the 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 fundamental trade off, and this is where we can kind of get into the practical back and forth between you and I, because the the research on this is is very new, uh, and you mentioned a lot of it is in rodents. Um, uh, the the practical trade off between these two is fundamentally if you're undertaking a low carb, high fat diet and or a ketogenic diet, you're upregulating you're upregulating all of your body's fat burning capabilities at the expense of its ability to perform high intensity exercise and the high carbohydrate side is almost the inverse of that now we can get into some nuance on how does a low carb diet impact bone health or immunity? And these are the, some of the things I was talking about with some of my earlier guests that, uh, that, that have come down. But from a performance standpoint, this yin yang of fat oxidation versus intensity is very clear. And to, to my knowledge yet, there's no way that you can get around it because it's all based in, on like these old stoichiometric equations that we've used to, to, to determine energy expenditure. I mean, what, so what is your, what is your take on what that in, intensity versus fat oxidation compromise, how relevant is it to an endurance athlete and how much could they be impairing their performances with higher fat, like higher fat types of diets or, or taking on a ketogenic diet or something like that? Like, is it that big, is that trade-off that big of a problem? I think is kind of what I, the question that I'm trying to get at. I think ultimately the way to answer that is that, that everybody is different. And we know that there, there are now, uh, 
you know, there, there are genetic studies now where, where we're finding that some people oxidize carbohydrates very, very effectively. Some people are very, very good at burning fats. We all know somebody that, that eats, you know, whatever they like, and they, they're always eating dessert and they drink a lot and they eat junk food and they, and they're still as skinny as a rake, you know, they never put on any weight because, and, 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 and by contrast, everybody knows somebody who has always been heavy and will always be heavy because people have different metabolisms, people have different frames and, and anthropometry, and that's always going to be the case. So everybody is different and some people will respond differently to different nutritional regimens. So it is a little bit trial and error and finding out what works for you. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna turn around to somebody who's been very, very successful following a ketogenic diet and tell them that, that their strategy isn't working because they're not gonna listen to me. So for some people it, it probably will work, right? But <laughs> and the other thing is that to kind of bring it back to your question is that for the most part, when you're training for ultra endurance sport, most of your sessions are going to be low intensity, long duration anyway. It's about racking up the miles. You don't, and again, tell me if you disagree with this, you're the coach, but you, you don't need to be doing a, a lot of high intensity training, you know, maybe a, a little bit of threshold work. If you're going to be running marathons simultaneously with ultra marathon, you might, you might want to do a little bit more tempo paced stuff, but, but for the most part, you need to be increasing your mileage. You're going to be doing a lot of slow, steady running. And so it might be more feasible to get away with a diet that is relatively lower in carbohydrate. Uh, and you know, there are, there are some studies by, by Volek, for example, who has found that you can get similar increases in, in fat mobilization and oxidation rates following a ketogenic diet, quote unquote, ketogenic that actually has up to 80 grams of carbohydrate per day, which isn't classically ketogenic. Um, but that might be just about enough to offset the decrements that you might see with chronic glycogen depletion. 80 grams a day is still not very much, but, but, but no, it's, it's still very low, but it's not nothing. No, that's it still anything. might be sufficient, but particularly if you're training at a yeah. very low intensity uh, right. for, for long periods of time. But ultimately, it comes back to listen to your body. I know for me, when I'm doing very high mileage training, if I'm, if I'm training for a particularly long race, I know that I need a certain amount of carbohydrates. I know how I, how I feel when I become chronically glycogen depleted. I can't train at all, even if I'm doing slow, steady running, if I'm glycogen depleted. So I know how my body responds and I know how I run best. But uh, there's a certain degree of experience that comes with that. Yeah. I agree with that individual response side of things. And I think out of this, out of the whole low carb, high fat, ketogenic dialogue. The the one that the the piece of it that really irritates me the most is that it works for me, it will work for you. That's that's where and I would say that about any strategy to be quite frank with you. It worked for me, it worked for you particularly in nutrition because we know that there's such a that's my that's my dog shaking her head in the background by the way. She makes an appearance on this podcast every now and again, Sasha. Um but we we do know that in in particular respects to nutrition, there is a high degree of individual variability. Um now, I don't 
I don't use that as a license to say, do whatever you want to do, because we still have to stay within the confines of human physiology on a lot of this stuff. But when I hear, when I hear people and you mentioned the entrenchment or the dogmatic nature uh, of these camps, that's the one that irritates me the most is when we go back and forth and say, well, this worked for me, so it's going to work for everybody. And, and to give credit where, where credit's due, I think a lot of the dialogue that a lot of that particular dialogue is starting to get a little bit muted because we're starting to realize that, yeah, you know, there are people that can be very successful on a low carb or a ketogenic diet, but we're also starting to realize that just as your story is a great example of, there are people that are just not successful that have tried, that have tried it because they're either curious or they heard so-and-so did it. And they're like, man, this is, this is kind of not for me. So I, I think the take home message is, is, in this, in the, and when I have athletes that are curious about that, about things like this, what I have them do is do it in increments, which is okay. You're if you, if you normally are taking in sixty grams of carbohydrate, let's reduce it to fifty and see how you feel. Okay, let's reduce it to forty and see how you feel. And normally, there's some sort of like you get that you get that feedback loop of I'm better here, I'm worse there, and then you can kind of use that to inform decisions versus completely upsetting the apple cart and saying, okay, we're going to kind of radically change this. The only situations that I do that in are the people that are like completely off the wagon in the first place that have, you know, horrifically bad McDonald's diets and things like that. Like they need the total cleansing. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, there's a strategy in, in critical thinking called defeasibility and, and, it, and it, rather than throwing evidence and, uh, and numbers at, at people who, who may already have fixed ideas on a particular subject. It's, it's always better to, to, to test the extent to which their ideas are very entrenched with this process called defeasibility. So you, you ask them, what would it take to change your mind? So if you have somebody that is a, a, an advocate of a very low carbohydrate diet and sugar is the demon and, and uh, you know, is, the, is the cause of all of the body's ailments, then okay, what would it take to change your mind? Would it take data? Would it take evidence? Would it take an expert talking about, you know, the emergence of some new literature? And if their answer is, well, nothing would change my mind, then you know that that's an ideology, right? Then then that's not a position that is based on reason and evidence. Uh, you know, and you can do that with pretty much anything, any any subject about which somebody has very fixed views and has made up their mind already, what would it just take to cleave you... some some room for doubt? And that 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 word is really important. And I'm I'm kind of getting a little bit off topic here, but I think it's such an important overarching message that there has to be doubt. Don't have fixed ideas on anything. Always leave room for some doubt and go where the evidence and where the experts are guiding you. Because if there's if there's no room for doubt, then you're following an ideology and nobody can nobody's going to tell you otherwise 100% i'm i'm 100% on board with you so we we've been spending a lot of time naturally because this is an endurance audience like hyper focused on carbohydrates and fats but there's another macronutrient that's also in the room that we also need to discuss in terms of performance and that, and that's protein which is incredibly important for uh, for endurance sports. And it's also one that, that is just quite frankly studied more. So what, what could, what do we know about protein for the ultra marathon athlete and how they should be, how they should be viewing that particular macronutrient? 
Pruning is a much easier one because, as you alluded to, the, there's a lot more literature in this area, and it's it's pretty well studied. So scientists and academics and nutritionists and dietitians all agree on the importance of protein, that there are, there are still arguments regarding some of the nuances of protein intake, but the broad overarching messages are, are, are pretty consistent. So we know that protein doesn't have a, a, a really important role in, in energy metabolism per se. So if you're sufficiently energy restricted, then your body will start breaking down structural and functional proteins to maintain blood glucose concentration. That's more related to racing. But on a day-to-day -day basis, protein doesn't have a really important role in energy metabolism. It's more about growth and maintenance of muscle tissue. And in, in the actual paper, it, it was a little bit tricky because there, there are no specific protein guidelines for ultra-endurance athletes or for ultra-marathon runners. We can extrapolate what we already know with a reasonable degree of confidence, but it hasn't been really closely studied in ultra-marathon runners. What we do know is that if you are participating in very high volume training or high intensity training, then your protein demands increase because you're, you're in a catabolic state more frequently. And we normally break this down into, into grams per kilo. So the, the normal recommendations would be to consume about one gram of protein per kilogram of body mass. Uh, so uh, you guys work in pounds, don't you? So 2.2 pounds in a kilo, you can, you can do the math. And if you're exercising very mm -hmm. long sessions or if you're exercising very high intensity or if you're doing strength and resistance type work, your protein demands go up. And they might go up as high as two grams per kilo per day. And if you have very high mileage training where your calorie expenditure is going through the roof, then it might be as high as three grams per kilo per day because you need to consume more overall calories just to, in order to break even. In terms of the the spacing out of that protein, so let's say you, you've got somebody um, who's a, let's say a, a 50 kilogram female. Again, I know you guys work in pounds, but if, you, if you're trying to optimize protein intake, then you're gonna try and get about two grams per kilo per day. So that's an easy one, you're looking at about 100 grams of protein. If you've got a particularly heavy runner, then it gets a little bit more difficult because you have somebody that's at the other extreme who weighs 100 kilos, then you're looking at 200 grams of protein per day at the upper limit, which is much which is much harder to get. But the research is pretty clear that you optimize fractional synthetic rate, or you or let's let's call this uh, muscle protein synthesis, by consuming protein in in roughly 20 to 30 gram doses or boluses, and you want to try and space them evenly throughout the day every three to four hours. And that's that's kind of as complicated as it gets. You know, we can talk about some of the details in terms of the quality of the proteins and, and specific food sources, but we know roughly how much exercising individuals need per day. We know how much they need per meal. And assuming that you are getting somewhere between 20, 30, 40 grams, depending on your body mass, every three to four hours throughout the day, then there's a good chance you're going to be meeting your protein requirements. So we're saving the simplest for last is what you're trying to say <laughs> in this whole macronutrient. And, and I, I, and I agree with you. And I think a lot of people can resonate with the math of just finding out their protein requirements per unit of body weight versus trying to figure out, figure out their 
calorie or try to figure out their carbohydrate or their fat requirements as a percentage of the whole. Like for whatever reason, they can take their weight and say, okay, I weigh 70 kilograms or 50 kilograms or 150 pounds or whatever. And they can apply that simple math. And it's just, it's just kind of easier for them to wrap their heads around. Um, are there, are there any nuances in men versus women with regards to protein intake? So ultimately the, the overarching message is to go with body mass, uh, because there's, there are there are some studies now emerging looking at sex differences in in protein intake and protein metabolism, but the key thing, as I've already mentioned, is that when you when you're going out and you're and you're, and you're training and when you're working out, your the energy metabolism or, or resynthesizing ATP adenosine triphosphate comes from burning carbohydrates and fats. So we're, we're breaking down carbohydrates and fats for energy metabolism. Under normal circumstances, protein doesn't have a significant role to play in energy metabolism unless you are substantially depleted in the other macronutrients. So as long as we're looking at protein intake relative to body mass, that's probably your best guide. And again, you want to try and get high quality protein sources. So when, when you say protein to an athlete, most of them will probably think of meat and fish, you know particularly red meat and all protein. I think that's kind of the quintessential protein or eggs, you know, whereas these are, they, these tend to be the better sources of protein in terms of the amino acid profile and the bioavailability. There are plenty of plant sources of protein as well, which, which can, which are perfectly good to satisfy your needs. So if you are a vegetarian or you're a vegan it's absolutely possible to meet your protein demands through a completely plant-based diet, but the caveat is it's just a little bit harder and it requires a little bit more thought and a little bit more planning. There's a lot of dialogue uh, around protein with ultramarathon athletes that is that that states that ultramarathoners should be taking in more, more protein simply because of the amount of muscular damage that they're incurring. And we can look at, you know, the ultramarathon races where they've tried to study this and we can look at some of the studies that they've done, uh, uh, for day to day ultramarathon athletes that, that indicate that there is a high degree of muscle turnover, muscle breakdown, uh, associated with training for the sport. Is that something that you would look at and, 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 and that is indicative of a runner needed that needs to take in a, like something towards the higher end of one of those ranges that you just mentioned? Yeah. So there are two things that, that will mediate the extent to which your, your, you, you will exhibit muscle damage. So it's the velocity of shortening of the muscle. So this is high intensity stuff. And obviously the duration of exercise as well. So anytime you're getting lengthening and shortening of a muscle over a very, very long period of time, typically, unless you're very, very new to training for ultramarathon, the only times that you're going to get really substantial muscle damage is if you are going out and doing a race. So you're, so you're training or, or you're racing over a distance that you wouldn't necessarily, that, that is more than, than what you would uh, uh, undertake in training or if you are running on particularly hilly or mountainous terrain. So we know from the literature that it's, it's actually the downhill running that does more damage rather than uphills. And so if you're training mm -hmm. on the trails or in the mountains and you're doing a lot of repeated downhill running, it's the eccentric load on the muscle that, it, that does more damage. It introduces more micro tears into the muscle. 
So if you're doing a lot of this type of training, then your protein demands might go up. If you're doing a lot of high intensity stuff, or if you're racing frequently, then your protein demands are going to be higher. But if you're just going out and you're running on relatively flat terrain with a relatively high mileage, there's, there's, I can't see a scenario where your protein demands would be higher than, for example, a, a, a strength athlete or somebody who's participating in a power-based sport. What about branch chain amino acids? I mean, that's been a focal, that's been a focal point for a lot of athletes, not just endurance athletes for, for, for years, your paper specifically touched on amino or branch chain amino acids for just a little bit. What do we know about that? So from my perspective, it's something that, that could play a key role in racing, which, which we'll probably get onto shortly during, during day-to-day training. I can't see a good reason for having to supplement with, with BCAAs unless your diet is insufficient. If you're getting enough protein in your diet and you're getting good sources of protein as well, you know, particularly if they've got a, a, a comprehensive uh, list of amino acids in the protein that you're taking in, then there's, there shouldn't be a need to be supplementing with any type of protein, particularly BCAAs. So it, it, again, it comes down to individual needs. It comes down to looking at your training requirements, your nutritional demands. If you find that you're really struggling to meet your protein demands, you know, we, we spoke about this, this example earlier, perhaps you have an athlete who's particularly large and their protein demands are going to be substantially higher than anybody else. It might be difficult to physically eat 200 grams of protein a day. You know, that's quite a lot of, that's quite a lot of chicken and you know there's a lot of eggs and if, you, if you're a vegan then good luck to you getting 200 grams of protein um, from plant-based yeah. foods and in which case they could you could put an argument forward for supplementing and bcaas would be a valid means of doing so but under normal circumstances if your diet is good shouldn't really be necessary during racing slightly okay. different story Okay, let's make sure we come back to that during racing because I think that's a that's a really interesting aspect. So the protein summary is 1.6 to 2.1 gram per kilogram per day. It's a body weight equation that we're looking at. We're looking at the size of the athlete and the protein requirements need to fit that size of an athlete. And then maybe, maybe in certain circumstances, particularly really high training loads, you could bump that up to two and a half grams per kilogram per day. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the other thing just to mention is there is a, a lot of obsession about the timing of, of protein intake. Do you need to consume protein immediately before training, during training or after, you know, it's common to see people in the gym, uh, you know, drinking their, their protein during the session as if that provides some kind of, you know, magical augmentation of, of muscular strength. The reality is, and that again, this has been widely studied some really nice review papers on this now, assuming you're meeting your protein demands and your protein is drip drip fed throughout the day, every three to four hours or so, then if you do the basic math, you're never going to be more than one and a half hours from a protein feed. So unless you're going to be in the gym, you know, for four or five hours at a time, which most people are not, then there shouldn't be any requirement to consume protein immediately before, during or after. Just make sure you get your protein periodically every three to four hours throughout the day, and that should be sufficient. Yeah, and I think I'm really glad that you mentioned that. I think the thing that confounds that, just like everything with ultramarathon running, is sometimes the sessions are long enough to where if you're only taking in carbohydrate for a four-hour run or a five-hour run, 
you kind of run afoul of that drip feeding method. So then in those circumstances, you just need to be mindful of when that next protein feeding should occur. And it's going to be pretty close to the back half or at the very end of that, that particular run. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Last piece of day-to-day nutrition. This is going to be hydration and in kind of the effort of time, I'm going to try to stylize this a, a, a little bit. You need to take in more fluid than you actually lose. Because yes. a lot of athletes will go in and, and we do we do this athlete from a, I think where we run afoul of this is one of the common, uh, one of the common tools that we use that we're going to get into on the racing side of it is a, uh, is a sweat test. So we have an athlete that goes out in a particular condition, they run for an hour, they weigh themselves before and afterwards, and they figure out their sweat rate per hour in those conditions at that intensity. And we use that as a tool in, in, in nutrition planning. But what gets um, erroneously extrapolated from that exercise is I therefore then need to replace that amount of fluid. So I lost one kilogram of fluid during this particular exercise, I need to replace it with one kilogram of fluid on the back end of it. But in fact, that's not the case. It's actually more and a lot more, right? Yeah, exactly. Because what people often forget is think about the reason why the humans urinate in the, all, all mammals urinate in the first place is to rid the body of toxins and metabolic byproducts. So even if you lose, let's say you lose one kilo in training then okay, you need to you need to replace the body mass that you've lost, but you're still you're you're still peeing out the metabolic byproducts and toxins from the body. So you're still losing more fluid. Your body doesn't doesn't stop that process just because you dehydrate. Yes, it, it is mitigated to some extent, but that's why the recommendations now are to consume approximately 150% of the body mass that you've lost. And I you know I love the strategy of pre to post weighing. It's so simple. It's effective. Everybody can do it. Just weigh yourself nude before and after your session. Make sure you take into account if you've taken any fluid or if you've if you've been eating as well. And you get a pretty good idea of how much fluid you're going to lose in a typical training session. It's simple. It's easy. You can look at the urine color chart. Look at the color of your pee. It's not foolproof, but it can just give you an idea as to your hydration status. And make sure, as you said, make sure you consume more fluid than you've lost during the session. And ideally try and get some sodium in, in your drink as well, because the research shows you retain more of that fluid if it contains some sodium. Yeah, perfect. Let's, let's, le- let's leave the hydration piece there, because I think it becomes, we're going to spend a lot of time on that, on the racing piece of it, since it is such a critical importance. Um, is there anything that is that we didn't hit on from a day-to-day nutrition perspective that you think is either worth reemphasizing or you want to go over really quick before we pivot to the racing side. I think we've covered all the bases here. I, you know, it, it's, um, I, th- I think going through the paper sequentially, there's, you know, the, the big sections have all been covered. So there's, there's nothing that comes to mind, but if I do think of anything, I'll be sure to circle back and mention it. Yeah, no problem at all. I always come back to total calories. Like we just, I think as, as I think a lot of coaches and athletes and sometimes in the sports science world as well, we get drawn into the weeds of, well, is this, you know, uh, 
vegetable source of protein or an animal source of protein? And what does the amino acid profile look like at this? And is it a simple carbohydrate versus a complex carbohydrate to like stylize that micronutrient or that macronutrient? And you've got to still make sure that you're hitting your total calories first. Like I always come back to that with my athletes is that if you want to drive improvement, if you want to, if you, if you want to just make the most improvement and make sure you've got all your bases covered, hit your total calories first. And then once you get close to there, we can start to dive into the details after that. Well, yeah. And, and just to extend that, I think, uh, exercises, athletes, and, and particularly athletes like ultra runners who tend to be a little bit more obsessive about their training. <laughs> and I don't say that lightly that, you know, there are studies on yeah. this oh, yeah. high rate of exercise dependence in ultra runners and all sorts, but, but we, we tend to, focus on the detail sometimes a little bit too the devil's in the detail i think it's very important but there's no point chasing an extra gram of protein per kilo per day or, or sorry an extra 0.1 gram of protein per kilo per day or looking at keto or this supplement or bcaas or anything else unless you've got the basics right and we like treating symptoms we like chasing that one quick fix mm -hmm. as humans we're conditioned to to look for the shortcut to performance you know it's that supplement or it's this training program, or it's that particular type of diet, this this particular fad, or barefoot running shoes, or compression, you know, whatever it happens to be. And and actually, the key thing, like you say, is bring it back to basics. Firstly, are you, are you recovering right, and are you getting enough calories? Don't worry about anything <laughs> else for now. Just focus on the big picture stuff first. Okay. Well, fortunately, the big picture stuff on the racing side is very similar to the big picture stuff on the training side where we first start to look at what are the energy requirements and then we start to look at okay how many cal how many total calories can we actually take in and you spend a little bit in the paper talking about energy expenditure in ultramarathon athletes and this is a fascinating area because there are not a lot of field studies or laboratory studies that we can actually lean on. We have to lean on, as I was alluding to my simple little calculation earlier, a lot of just guesstimates based on, you know, other pieces of research or even biomechanics and things like that. So what, what can you tell us about the range of energy expenditure that athletes are going to encounter during an ultra? I guess the first thing is that a lot of the stuff that we've already spoken about is relevant here because if if you're going to calculate how how many calories a typical adult is burning, you know, in a one hour run, if you take into account their body mass, their sex, their running velocity, and so forth, then you can get a pretty good estimation of how many calories they're going to be burning per hour. And we spoke about you know potentially using other bits of technology technology to estimate this. The literature that we have available, we can make a pretty broad brushstroke recommendation that you're going to need somewhere between 150 and 400 calories per hour in order to have a chance of sustaining continued work rate. Now, obviously, that's quite a, a range, and that's to take account of people with very low body mass who might be running particularly slowly, and at the other end of the spectrum, perhaps heavier people who might be uh, running faster. But if you're running shorter distance, you know, it was a little bit arbitrary when we were trying to come up with a, uh, a distance to categorize shorter ultramarathons and longer. And we kind of arbitrarily said, well, I don't know, 50 miles. But let's say if you're running less than 50 miles, it's probably sustainable to be able to take in somewhere between 150 and 300 calories per hour. 
But if you're running longer distances, then the consequences of chronic calorie uh, depletion or, or, or chronically insufficient calories are going to mount up. So, so let's say, for example, you're not meeting your calorie demands. And if you're running an ultra marathon, there's a pretty good chance you're not going to be taking in as many calories as you're burning. I think that's a given. Yeah, you can't. But it's yeah. the extent to which you can offset that that is going to dictate performance. And if you're running a 35-mile race or a 50-mile race, then the consequences of chronically low calorie intake are not as great as if you're running a 100-mile race. But that's kind of the ballpark range that we're looking at. And, and as you mentioned, that's a big range. Um, now, we need to move down to – it's one thing to know the amount of calories that you're actually burning – but it's another, it's another thing to know how many calories you should actually take in. And this is something that's actually rather, rather, rather fascinating because in a lot of cases, while we try to have this energy output versus energy input equation, try to balance, here's one, as you've already alluded to, where it's just, it's almost impossible to balance. You're always going to be in some sort of negative output situation given the time and duration. It's just how far you can extend it. On the energy intake side of things, there are all of these different recommendations that float around. Okay, you need 200 to 400 calories, 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates, this much of this, this much of that. Before we get into the specific recommendations themselves, I think what sets the table for this is what are the limiting factors first? And what do we know about what those limiting factors are on the energy intake side of the equation? Like an athlete wants to take in a gel or two or three or four, what's preventing them from taking in, or, or I guess what's limiting them from just taking in 10 gels an hour, right? What are the, what are the things that they, can, that they can look at that limits that energy intake side of the equation? Well, the, the, the primary thing is the gut, obviously. It's your ability to, to absorb nutrients through the gut, through the intestine, Get, and get get the energy into the blood and the gut can only absorb so many calories it's different from person to person and there is an, an extent to which you can train the gut but this is this is if there's going to be a traffic jam it's going to be in the gut because there's only so many calories you can absorb but before we even get to that palatability is so important anybody who's run an ultra marathon over 50 miles so in the shorter distance races if you can finish your run in you know, six, eight, ten hours, something, you know, in that kind of range, I'm speaking very broadly here, you might get away without suffering GI distress. If you're running distances over that, I don't think there is a runner alive who has not suffered from gastrointestinal distress to some extent. The, the literature suggests that up to 80%, 90% even of, of ultramarathon runners will experience gastrointestinal distress quite frequently. And it's usually um, it's usually upper GI distress, although you can get upper and lower, but it's particularly upper. So upper, so this could be heartburn, nausea, uh, belching, this kind of thing. And nausea is the key one because once you start feeling nauseated, then inevitably you want to eat less food. And if mm -hmm. you're not taking in the calories because you feel nauseated, then your blood glucose levels start to drop. That makes you feel even more nauseated. And then it's a downward spiral that's very, very difficult to break. So palatability of food is really important. 
but ultimately it comes down to how much food you can absorb through the gastrointestinal tract and into the blood. And there is a very finite limit for that absorption rate. And what is that absorption rate? This is what well, we're, this is the crux of everything, right? Okay. So again, it's, it's going to be different for each individual person. Uh, it, it will be different because of the extent to which the gut is trainable and it will, be, it will depend on the macronutrients that you're consuming. If we take carbohydrate as an example, you mentioned that some of the recommendations are to consume 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Now, the, the 90 gram, the, the 60 to 90 gram recommendation for the most part comes from marathon and triathlon literature because there's a lot of research now looking at multiple transportable carbohydrates. Now, the absorption capacity for glucose through the intestine is about 60 grams per hour. And without sort of getting into too much detail, we know that glucose uses a very specific intestinal transporter, sodium-dependent glucose transporter 1, SGLT1, imaginatively titled. And it's dependent on, on sodium availability, which is why a lot of sports drinks contain trisodium citrate, for example, because it facilitates the movement of glucose through the gut. But this sodium transporter has a very uh, finite capacity for transporting glucose. And it's thought to be about 60 grams per hour. So if you're consuming more than 60 grams of glucose per hour, there's a good chance that it's either going to pass straight through and you're going to you're going to pee it out or it's going to start giving you more likely it's going to start giving you gastrointestinal upset now the premise behind multiple transportable carbohydrates is that they contain an extra sugar fructose and fructose uses a different transporter to to pass through the intestine so it's kind of analogous to opening up a another bridge trying to cross a river you know you're going to get less of a traffic jam if there's an extra road you're going to get more absorption of, of carbohydrates. So under those circumstances, it might be realistic to consume up to 90 grams per hour. But most of those recommendations, as I've said, come from the marathon or triathlon literature when you're exercising for maybe three, four hours at a time. And that's if you're you know, fairly nimble. If you're fairly quick, you might finish your marathon right. in three, four hours. For the majority of people, it's going to be slower than that now that there's some pretty robust literature from some experts in in the nutritional field who have suggested consuming multiple transportable carbohydrates during ultra endurance exercise particularly ultra marathon and getting 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour but you only need to have run ultra marathon to know that if you try and get 90 grams of carbs per hour particularly from sports drinks which is the only viable way to do it you're gonna vomit you, you are gonna throw up <laughs> particularly if you're exercising yep. for eight 12 hours imagine trying to consume yep. that volume of sports drink in a 24-hour race it it's not gonna happen we, we think about or this, gels or gels yeah i mean i don't know about you but i know i can tolerate probably four gels an hour for about four hours after that i start feeling pretty sick and that's that's an awful you're right? lucky yeah four hours man i don't know if i could do that for one hour well, precisely <laughs> for most people it's maybe one to two gels per hour which which is right might get you through a marathon but but it's grossly insufficient for a race that's going to last longer than that but let's put that into practical terms for for for, for the runners who are going to be listening so typical sports drink 
is about 6% carbohydrate. So it's an isotonic drink, or maybe 6 to 8%. So what that means is that for every 100 milliliters of fluid, you have six grams of sugar. I work in mills. You guys work in ounces, right? Like, again, yep. you'll have to do yep. the com conversion. But in a typical half liter sports drink, you may be looking, depending on the drink, somewhere between 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate. So to get 90 grams per hour, you're looking at well over a liter of sports drink per hour. Or if you're thinking about gels, okay, so maybe there's 20, 25 grams of gels, uh, of carbohydrates in a, in, a, in a given gel, you're looking at four gels per hour. Again, I, I know I can tolerate that for maybe three, four hours. But it, you know, I, I was in um, Chamonix, I was lucky enough to be invited to Chamonix to do some research at the UTMB last September with the Mayo the Mayo Clinic and some of the really good the elite athletes we know they finish in 24 hours but but very good runners will, will take 35 40 hours to complete that race it's a very tough race one of the toughest you imagine consuming that number of gels or that volume of sports drink over a 40 hour race it's just not even not even feasible so right. this kind of idea of 90 grams per hour is uh, is a misnomer for me particularly if you're getting solid food. And we've got to think about how palatability changes. We know that ultra runners tend to favor more savory foods as, as the race duration goes on. So um, we've, we've got to think about the practicality of those recommendations. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that because I see this 60 to 90 grams per hour recommendation touted a lot. And while I understand the science behind it, and I understand this, these multiple channels that carbohydrates can be uh, absorbed through the uh, through the gut, just to your earlier point, from a practical standpoint, it's not tenable. Like no, like very, very, very few people can actually get away with that and practice for more than a few hours. And then the other thing I actually come back to is even if you could do that. It's not necessary based on the caloric expenditure. Like if you actually look, if you actually dial down to, okay, how many carbohydrates do you need to replace? For everybody but the most elite athletes, it's not 90 grams, 360 calories every single hour in order to, um, in, in order to, to not completely deplete the glycogen store. So you look at this and it's like, well, A, it's based on elite athletes. And very few people are elite athletes. B, it's as you mentioned, it's based in a triathlon and marathon setting, and this is not triathlon or marathon. I think we have to move those for for an ultra marathon recommendation. We've got to move them down to something more that's more practical. One of the really interesting things in terms of of carbohydrate and caloric absorption that I think is fascinating that I want to get your uh, take on is nor is, is notice we didn't say grams per hour or sorry, we're using grams per hour, but we're not using grams per unit body weight, meaning we can apply these same recommendations for the most part to a smaller athlete and a larger athlete. And it doesn't appear that size, that body weight, has a whole lot to do with how athletes can actually absorb carbohydrates, which which is counterintuitive to a lot of people because they would think a larger person, bigger, you know, stomach mass or you know more stomach lining to to absorb the carbohydrates. That doesn't seem to be the case, no, does it? Not in the case of carbohydrate absorption. 
You're absolutely right that there are going to be different rates of carbohydrate absorption among different runners, but it's not it's not going to be body mass dependent. And so this is this is when the the science the the broad recommendations from science go a little bit out the window because individual tolerability is the key thing here, and it's about figuring out what you can individually tolerate. So I get asked an inordinate amount of the time, you know, how much carbohydrate should I be taking? It's usually for marathon. A lot of people run marathon, fewer people mm-hmm. run ultra. But they'll ask me, how, how many gels or how, how much sports drink should I be taking in over the course of my marathon? And I'll always respond the same. I'll, 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 I'll say, well, as much as you can feasibly tolerate, as much as you, you can feasibly yeah. tolerate. And the only way yeah. you're going to figure that out yep. is through practice. And we know that you can train the gut. We've mentioned this a couple yep. of times. And by subjecting your gastrointestinal system to higher volumes of carbohydrate intake over a period of time and in periodic training sessions, you can train your gut to absorb higher volumes of carbohydrate at given running speeds. That obviously takes time. It's got to be done in training, but individual tolerance is the key. Yeah. And also with the, we'll we'll move to gut training and I want to kind of come back to some of the fat intake and the protein intake that we need to be concerned about during racing. But since we already skipped to the, you know, training the gut piece, this is another area that I, that I, uh, found that I find quite fascinating. The first lens that I look at this through is not this, the, the really scientific Ricardo Costa study that, that is, that has been passed around now type of lens that says, okay, if we, you know, if we, if we, have athletes take in a higher level of carbohydrates. We see these types of things happen in the body at the cellular level, at a chemical level that they're, that they're, that then is going to enable them to absorb more carbohydrates. I look at it from, uh, what is the athlete going to ask of themselves during a race? How much, how many calories am I going to ask them to take that, to take in during a race? And it's normally, 250 calories or something like that, 50 grams of carbs an hour, some, some, somewhere around there. And so we need to train that. I need to train the athlete to be able to do that. And I liken it to, I would never ask an athlete that trains at 10 minute pace all day to go and run a race at eight minute pace. Nobody would ever do that. But yet from a gut tolerance standpoint and from a fueling standpoint, Athletes do that constantly. They go out on training runs and they fuel at 150 calories an hour or even 100 calories an hour because they can get away with it, right? Because four-hour training run, three-hour training run, things like that, you can get away with that for that training run. But then in the race, they're asking their body to process 250 calories, 300 calories an hour and things like that. And it's such a big training mismatch that shouldn't be that, that, that you should get the analogy. And so that's like the first lens that I look at this training the gut piece through is you have to train the athlete to be able to tolerate the calories that you anticipate that being able to tolerate during the race. And the only way you can do that is in training, but relevant to this training, the gut thing, we're actually starting to see some like mechanistic happenings going on when we actually do it in a research setting. When we feed people higher amounts of fuel and carbohydrates, they adapt to being able to absorb those carbohydrates. Yeah, and, it, and it's characteristic of athletes in general placing relatively more emphasis on periodizing their training 
as opposed to periodizing their their nutrition. It's perfectly, everything you said is so intuitive that you wouldn't expect somebody to to do all of their, the majority of their training at a 10 minute mile pace and then go out and run an eight minute mile because your body's going to say, hey, what's what's happening here? That's going to be a a shock to the system. Exactly the same with the gut. And particularly when the gut is so susceptible to these these big changes. And and if there's one thing that's going to scupper you, it doesn't matter how fit you are, doesn't matter how many miles you've you've got in the bank, doesn't matter how many world titles you have, if your gut shuts down, you're done. That's it. There's you there's no there's nobody who there's no mental willpower that you can't you can't just you know tough it out. It's if your gut shuts down, you can't eat or drink, you're done. So um, this is kind of one of the first things that we should think about, especially when there's so much research, exactly as you said, the cost is doing some excellent work in this area that shows that the gut is trainable. We're starting to see that getting a mechanistic understanding of how this works now. And there's so much research on how gastrointestinal distress seems to be one of the most commonly reported reasons for, for non-finishing, for DNFs in races. It, it's the oh, gut. yeah, absolutely. I think yep. um, just anecdotally, yep. Yep. I'm- uh, again, just going back to, to when we were in Chamonix, we, we tested 30 athletes and I'd say 25 of them uh, came back reporting really severe bouts of gastrointestinal distress. At least half of them had thrown up somewhere on had vomited somewhere on the course. And I think that that was the, one of the contributing factors. It was very very hot, and there were extremes of temperature in that race, much more severe than in in recent years. But it, it's so it's so common, it's so prevalent prevalent that we should, we've got to be looking at this first and foremost. Is how do we overcome this, and how do we train the gut so that during racing? We're doing whatever we can to mitigate that GI distress. Well, and another thing that's 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 prevalent that we actually see in practice is athletes really don't know. So there's an educational component that needs to happen on the front end. Yeah, we can say you need to take in, you know, 60 grams of, of carbohydrate per hour and things like that. But a lot of times athletes are kind of clueless about what that actually means in the real world. And we have this really nifty um, exercise that we have them do when they come to one of our training camps where we get to like meet and train with them in person. It, it's, it's super simple. We just have them save all of their wrappers from a four or five hour run. And then when they, when they come back, they dump them out on all all, out on the table and we record the calories, the sodium, and then the fluid that they actually have to took in that they actually took in. So that's the one thing that they have to memorize is how much fluid that they, that they, that they actually took in. And then we say, this is how many calories per hour that, um, that you took in. This is how much fluid per hour that you actually took in. And this is the amount of milligrams of sodium per unit fluid that you took in throughout the entire run. That's the piece that has the most amount of math and it's really not that difficult. But just by dumping it all that trash out on the table and saying, okay, well I took in 800 calories, but I went on a five hour run, that's way less than 200 calories an hour. A lot of times the light, bu- the, you know, those light bulbs start to go off with the athlete of how underfueled they actually are and how conscientious they need to be about, man, I really need to, I really need to step my game up in this, uh, in this area because I'm going to be asking my body to do, to take in calories at a higher rate than I'm doing in training. I think it, it, that's a really nice exercise because it makes it much more tangible when you can quantify things right. very clearly, very, very easy exercise. Look, this is 
approximately how many calories you're burning. This is how many calories you're taking in. Same with fluid. Uh, because it's not something that people often give any thought to, and it's and it's so cr- critical. Yeah. And even then, you know, how how often have you have you been milling around at the start of a race, or even at the, at the at a race expo, and there are people queuing up trying samples of of different gels and foods that they've never tried before. Oh, it's like I'm thinking I'm thinking of trying this tomorrow. What do you think? Like, well, have you have you, tra- yeah. have you used this in training? Like, <laughs> what are you playing at? Of course, you shouldn't be trying this for the first yeah. time tomorrow. Yeah. So let, let's dial it down to the practical though, because we have this huge range of what athletes can take in. The The way that I do it is I split, I just split it down the middle and educate first. And I start, and this is almost any athlete, elite athlete, big athlete, small athlete. I, I don't really change it that much. I say, let's target 240 to 260 calories an hour. And let's just do it all from carbohydrate, which, which ends up which ends up being pretty simple, right? Two and a half gels, two to three gels per hour, every hour, two gels and a little bit of sports drink, one gel and a whole lot of sports drink. We can come up with those combinations, but 240 to 260 calories an hour on your next long run, go out, do that. Let's see how it feels. And then based on how that, how that feels in 240, 260 calories an hour is going to be 60 grams of carbohydrates. So the lower end of that range that we were just mentioning, 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates. You go out on the run and you see how they feel. If they feel great, let's see if we can ratchet that up and either train the gut or see where their personal tolerance is. If it's not great, let's ratchet it down to where their personal tolerance is, work there for a little bit, and then see if we can and then see if we can ratchet it up. I think that going through and that takes a long time because you can't do this on 90 minute runs or even two hour runs because the feedback that you get is not as valid because the exercise isn't as stressful. But when you do that for four or five or six months for all the long runs, that's when they can really get those calorie ranges dialed. It just takes time, just like any piece of training. But the strategy of like starting somewhere in the middle, using that as a calibration point and then titrating up or titrating down from there, that that's how I get that's how I get these enormous ranges dialed down for each individual athlete. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, you you've got to play the long game. I, I've been saying this for years: is is that you can't start thinking about your nutrition a month before a given race and expect everything to go. You wouldn't start training a month before a race. Well, some people do, I'm sure, but um, they're, they're unlikely to be winning any medals. Um, and they're probably doing a lot of damage to their bodies. But but the point is, yes, you've got to play the long game. You've got to start thinking about these things six months, you know, a year out from your race and start start training your nutrition just like you would just like you're you're thinking about periodizing your training program. Because at the end of the day, in a race, you, you are going to you, you, it, we've already established that it's impossible to meet your calorie requirements. And the, the harder you run, the more carbohydrates you're going to burn. We know that typically during ultramarathon, we can sustain more fat. And we know that our because we're working at a lower intensity, so we're oxidizing relatively more fat, we know that our tastes are going to change. If you run races that last more than 12 hours, we know that, that there's a, a, a taste preference that shifts away from sweet foods and, and more over to savory, salty foods, probably because it reflects more of a chemical imbalance in the body 
So all of these things have to be considered holistically. It's no good just, you know, a month out of from a given race and start seeing how many gels you can tolerate, but you've got to start planning your nutrition really long in advance. Yep. I, I think that's a really good way to, to phrase it is you wouldn't start training a month before an event. Let's not think about your nutrition a month before an event. Um, we tend to be a little bit overfixed on carbohydrates as a source of energy. And this is a little bit of a byproduct from all of the marathon and triathlon research that is heavily carbohydrate dependent just because of the intensity. But that might not necessarily translate to an ultra marathon per, uh, uh, setting. And we do know that there is a role for some fat and some protein intake during an ultra. So let's, t let's divide up those two macros next for, uh, for recommendations for an ultra. What do we know about fat intake during an ultra and what should athletes be doing from that perspective? Yeah, and, and as I've already mentioned, be, because ultramarathons tend to be run at a slower velocity than you know the same person would run a marathon, then the, the gut has a, a greater propensity for absorbing nutrients. If you're working at a very high intensity, anything above, say, 65% VO2 max, you know that the rate of gastric emptying is going to be reduced. It's going to be compromised because the blood flow is redirected to the exercising limbs. So your ability to, to break down and absorb nutrients through the gut is compromised. During ultramarathon, it's a little bit different because you're working at relatively lower intensities. So you can tolerate foods that have more calories and that have high concentrations of fat or high quantities of fat, I should say. And the types of food that you can get away with eating in an ultra marathon is going to be very different to what you can get away with in a typical marathon when you're running at much higher speeds. So we know that we can tolerate more fat and fat has a really important role to play because it's so much more energy dense. So carbohydrate, typically four calories per gram, fat is up to nine calories per gram. So over a long period of um, time, we know that fat is much more energy efficient. So we need to be moving away from this idea of, of purely carbohydrate and we need to be getting in a mix of macronutrients. So fat is relatively easier to absorb during ultramarathon than it would be in any race of shorter distance. And we know that it gives us many more calories per unit. But ultramarathon is one of those sports where we, we can start to, we can think about eating more normal foods. Very few people are going to run an ultramarathon on sports drinks and gels just doesn't happen and it's not necessary because of the relatively low running speeds you don't need to consume that the whole premise behind sports drinks and gels is that they're very readily absorbed they're absorbed very quickly through the system and provide very readily available source of energy for the resynthesis of atp but we don't need such a rapid supply of energy during ultramarathon because we're running at lower at slower speeds so we can eat more normal foods the, the problem with the, the, with this is, is that we are, to some extent, limited by what's available at checkpoints. And a lot of runners rely a little bit too heavily, I would say, on what's available at checkpoints. So one of the principles behind writing this paper is that it wasn't just for athletes and coaches, mm. but it was for race directors as well, so that they could get an idea of the type of foods that athletes need during ultramarathon. So that, you know, I, I've run so many races where the food available at checkpoints was just dire. You know, I, I did a 100 miler 
couple of years ago, I won't mention the name of the race, but but every single checkpoint, you know, throughout the this 100 mile race, and we're talking about every 10 miles or so, had the same food, identical same food. There was no real substantial kind of meal based foods there. It was all very much just snack products, and there was hardly very little to no protein. And um, unfortunately, I had some of my own food, so I could take, I could get some protein, and I could get more fat based products as well. But it really was dire. So you are to a certain extent limited by what's presented to you to you at checkpoints, which is why understanding your own needs is so critical because then you can take some of your own food as well to make sure you're meeting your requirements. But from a fat perspective, I mean, it's it's almost one of those things that because you can incorporate more fat into your race diet at ultra marathon uh versus uh any any other uh higher intensity race you should but the reasons for that is is just it because it makes your energy intake it makes your race nutrition plan this is this is the way that i that i that i think about it from a practical perspective it makes that race nutrition plan more sustainable throughout the course of a long ultra marathon because it it gives you another tool to vary the palatability, which we're going to talk about a little bit. It gives you another tool to vary that palatability up. So it's not just sweet on sweet on sweet. You have the opportunity to take in some foods that have a higher fat content, which might be more savory or more salty. Well, I think what's interesting is is that as the race goes on, you're, you're, if you listen to your body, it will tell you what it needs because very soon you'll get taste fatigue with the carbohydrates and and soon you'll the the idea of eating something very sweet right. will just make you feel nauseated you'll feel sick and you won't want to do it so you you have this natural kind of shift over towards more savory foods and i don't that's not that's not a coincidence the reason that that happens well it could be we don't know for sure but it could be because you're starting to become depleted in sodium and this that chemical imbalance drives the taste the change in taste preference but it but it's also quite likely to be the fact that you are energy depleted as well when you have this very large energy deficit your body starts craving foods that are more calorie dense so you get this shift towards a preference for more savory foods which just happen to have fat and salt in it yeah, it's not it's not a coincidence. Your body tells you pretty much what it needs. Right. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I, your body's pretty smart and um I think needless to say like you do have the opportunity to have more foods that have a higher fat content in ultra and I think a lot of ultra athletes should just like we were talking about in the months leading up to their ultra marathon race should be cons- should be considering what are the whole array of foods that they're going to be taking in during the race of which they have the option to have some, some foods with some fat content. And here in the U S I, to, to your point that this, um, that this consensus statement, one of the end users of this is going to be the race directors. I think a lot of race directors have started to, 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 to realize that. And it's, it's driven as ironic as this sounds, it's driven from the feedback from their athletes. Hey, we want, more satiating, fatty, saltier foods later in the race as opposed to the beginning of the race. And a lot of these race directors, what they're doing is their aid stations for a 100-mile race at mile 80 and mile 70 and 75, they look completely different than they do 
at mile 20 and mile 30. And the way that they look completely different is they're starting to shift towards the quesadillas and the tater tots and the, you know, soups and things like that later in the races or earlier in the race. It's all like, you know, candy and energy gels and sports drink and things like that. Sure. But, but I think, and that's so important. And I've, I've only run a couple of ultras in the, in the States since I've been, been over there. Yeah. And from my from you know an N of two, I've I've noticed that it seems to be better in the states than it is in the UK. That's not to say it's the same in every race in the UK or in Europe, but but I think the the point that you touched on is that race directors mm-hmm. are starting to take note of that, and it's supplying more real food. You know, particularly if you let's say you have a hundred mile race or over, let's say it lasts <laughs> for twenty four hours. You would never go a normal day. You would never go for 24 hours without having yeah. a meal. You know? And you, you go for 24 hours, you've skipped, what, three, four, five proper meals, and yet uh, you, you add the fact that you're running 100 <laughs> miles on top of that. You expect to fuel yourself by, by eating jelly babies and peanuts and Pringles, you know. But you need to, you're skipping multiple meals, and I think there's even a line in the paper where I, I can't – I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing myself here, but – but uh, it, it was something along the lines of we urge race directors to provide more real food, more meals, especially when they're running races that span multiple meal times. Uh, you know, you might start a race at 6 a.m. and you might not finish until midnight. You're going to need some, oh, well, some real food in there. It, you know, as a, as, as a personal experience, I did Tour de Giant, Tour de Giant uh, last year, and uh, my wife uh, came out to crew for me for that, uh, which is a pretty good gig, by the way, because the crewing for Tour de Giant is like, you know, 10 or 20 hours in between when you can see your runners. So you could go and you can, you know, hang out with them and then go and sleep or have a nice meal or go on your own run or whatever. So, but anyway, her, like the, the strategy to, to, to summarize it is I'm going to have all my meals when I see you. So just bring me a pizza. And that's exactly what she did. We had some other things, but the main thing was just, just bring me a pizza. They're easy to find in Italy, of course, right? The homeland of pizzas. And I sat there and I ate a copious amount of pizza at every you know, life base, which is roughly every 50 kilometers that I could see her at. And then when I left, I would have sports drinks, gels, chews, maybe some, you know, other kind of, you know, nicks and knacks that I would pick up from the, uh, from the refugios, but having that meal timing roughly every 50 K and trying to keep on some sort of regular meal timing became uh, a really critical piece of that whole puzzle. Yeah, for sure. It's punctuating the constant stream of snack food with meals, with real meals <laughs> that, that break up the break up the taste fatigue, but also give you a calorie dump. You know, you're going to sit there yeah. and eat some pizza. And that's not 150 calories. That's an awful lot yeah, more, exactly. and it's much more sustainable yeah. that way. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Protein. We alluded to this several minutes ago. Um, that this is going to be a really interesting uh, aspect. So what do we know about protein intake during an ultramarathon race? Well, we spoke about the fact that all of the literature that we have available suggests that we need to get, in order to optimize muscle protein synthesis on a day-to-day basis, we need to be getting protein every three to four hours. And that seems to be the optimum strategy. So why, when we're competing in an ultramarathon that might last 12 hours, 24, 48 hours, however long, it, it, well, why would anyone voluntarily choose to 
omit protein from their diet. And it's something that a lot of athletes do. They think about carbohydrates and fats because it's that's considered to be important for energy metabolism. But you wouldn't, again, you wouldn't go a whole day without consuming any protein. So it's even more critical when you're running an ultra because you're putting your body through such a uh, substantial degree of muscle strain, muscle stress. So we, we've got to find a way to get more protein into the race diet. And again, it, it can be difficult sometimes because, you again, you are a little bit, um, you, ha you have to depend on the extent to which you're provided with protein at checkpoints unless you take your own food. So some race directors are catching on now, but if they're not, you've got to be prepared. So you've got to take your own sources of protein. So how do we do that in practice? Well, you can, you can take pro protein bars, you know, take energy bars that have protein in them. And there are lots of these available that have at least 20 grams of, of protein. So one of those will, will last you, you know, for three, four hours. Think about the same strategy, trying to get protein every three to four hours or so. Um, you can think about supplementing. We've, we kind of touched upon BCAAs. There are a couple of reasons why taking amino acids or, a, or, a, or one of the um, essential amino acids or the, or the BCAAs, because not only does it provide you with a valid source of protein, but it can potentially help to offset this central fatigue, which has been researched a little. It's not, it's not absolutely decisive, but there's some very interesting research on central fatigue in very, very long duration exercise. And uh, central fatigue is basically an accumulation of tryptophan and serotonin in the brain. And when you get an accumulation of serotonin, it, it, it generates feelings of lethargy and tiredness. Now, these are not sensations that you really want to experience when you're trying to run an ultra marathon. So the way that we can start to offset that is to supplement with branch chain amino acids. And they compete for transport across the blood brain barrier and can, to some extent, mitigate the accumulation of tryptophan and serotonin in the brain. So it can, in some studies, help to offset this kind of central fatigue, which is only likely to happen in very, very long duration exercise. So BCAAs might be a, a relatively valid means of, yes, addressing central fatigue, getting your protein intake. But, but again, you know, I stress that if you're, if you're eating normal food and you're, getting, you're meeting your protein demands through normal food, then you probably don't need BCAAs or any kind of supplement at all. But where are you getting your protein from? That's the question you need to ask. And it doesn't take much. I mean, you mentioned, I think a lot of people will think, well, I don't want to eat a protein bar, you know, all in one sitting during an ultramarathon race. It's like, no, 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 that's not 20 grams of protein over the course of a few hours is, is yeah, you have to be mindful about it, but that doesn't mean you're eating copious amounts of beef jerky all at once to improve your ultramarathon performance. It's, it means that some reasonably spaced out and strategically taken in bits of protein throughout an ultra is completely reasonable. Yeah, for sure. And, and okay, let's break that down. So it's, t it's 10 grams every two hours. For right. example, 10 grams is not a lot. No, um, it, it, it's really not. And, and you'll find, and again, I, I'm curious to know what your experience of this is. But when I've done the really long stuff, I, I'm, I'm craving very high salt foods. You know, I did, did Marathon Day Sub in 2011. Uh, feels like a, a lifetime ago now. But, and again, the heat plays a factor, but, but uh, 
you know, you, you start craving beef jerky and pepperami and anything that's very, very salty, anything that's, uh, that isn't energy gels, just goes down so wonderfully well, you know, because it's the other end of the spectrum. So you, you find that you're craving more of this stuff anyway. It's easiest to get in. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, once this is just like, this is start, this is personal anecdote, right? Because I've heard this theory thrown out, your body is craving what it wants. And I get it. That totally makes intuitive sense. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're sodium, uh, if you're, if you're, so if you have a sodium deficit, you're going to crave salty things. I get it. That makes totally sense. But in another sense, I'm like, well, your body's probably craving just something different than what it's been taking in for the last seven hours. And it might not necessarily be that you're deficient or that you have some sort of decrement of sodium or whatever you're craving. It might just be like, hey, dude, I'm like complete, I am completely over the sweet stuff. Give me anything else. So it's independent of what these individual like deficits or what or whatever level are. And so I don't I don't know what to chalk it up to, other than to say it coming back to the research. Is well demonstrated that those taste preferences change throughout the course of an ultra. I think it's the root of what those changes are that can that we can kind of come into question. Yeah, that's very erudite because there's lots of research showing that taste preferences change. Why that happens, we don't know. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't agree more. It may be because of chemical imbalances. It may be because of certain deficiencies. What we do know is that. The people who are more successful in ultramarathon eat more calories and drink more fluid. That's it. And even when normalized for the duration of time that you're running, the people who don't finish uh, tend to not consume as many calories and are not consuming as much fluid. Yep. So whatever you need to consume, if your body is craving a certain food, then you eat it. Because in the absence of anything else, you've got to take in what you can stomach if you're craving a very particular type of food, this is where the kind of the science goes out the window a little bit. You've, you can only follow a strategy so far, but at some point it, it kind of becomes survival. Just get in what you can get in as, as much as you can tolerate and whatever you are craving, that's better than the alternative. Yep. And you know, one thing that I've, that I've seen more often than I'd like to in, in ultra is, uh, people failing to finish races because they feel nauseated because their gut has shut down. And there are various reasons for that, which we can talk about if you like, but the gut was shut down, blood sugar levels will drop. People feel sick and they stop eating and that exacerbates the problem. And one of the strategies that it's not evidence-based and this is where kind of, again, the science goes out the window and we, I don't want to be making, recommendations that are not evidence-based but sometimes to break that that downward cycle that downward spiral of increasing feelings of sickness and calorie deficits is to actually force feed yourself now again this is purely anecdotal but i found that when i start feeling sick in an ultra if i take a break and actually take a respite from running and give myself maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes to actually force some food down. If I can get a substantial bolus of calories, I feel way better. Yeah. There's no literature on that and there's no ethical way to study it either. But I think often the cause of feelings of sickness and the cause of GI distress is chronic 
calorie deficit. So you've got to find a way to break that. So I'm keen to get your thoughts. Yeah, there could there could be something to that. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I shrug my shoulders at it, meaning I've had both experiences. I've had I've had I've both myself and with athletes, I've had them be able to alleviate nausea both by let's just shut the calories off for the next hour and let you reset. And let's just as you mentioned, let's sit down and force feed something. I've had both of those work and both of those go south. And it's like I just kind of come I just kind of come back to the guessing game and kind of knowing uh uh knowing the athlete and also being able to track are you really in a caloric deficit in order to force feed. I think that that's part of the equation that gets left out as well. I I really boil this 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 thing down to the first thing that we talked about that you actually need to train your strategy, right? You need to tra- train if you if you expect to be able to take in 250 calories an hour during the race, you'd actually need to train that for months on end. Part of the months on end piece, um, what that also enables you to do is to add different foodstuffs into the arsenal. Because all too often athletes, they take the easy way. They're like, okay, I'm going to go out. I'm going to grab two gels that are in the closet, right? And they don't take the time to think, well, that's not all I'm going to eat during an ultra. I'm going to eat it, you know, possibly a quesadilla or have some soup or have some sort of real food. And they forget to train that part of their nutrition plan, the real food part of their nutrition plan during training. And one of the strategies that I try to arm my athletes with when they're, when they're working out these nutrition programs is to give them as many arrows in the quiver as possible that they can draw from during race day. So when they do get sick of the strawberry gel that they're taking into, they know, and they have a lot of confidence in something else that they can take in that will provide them calories. Because a lot of this, and I talked, I talked to Patrick Wilson, who wrote a really great book uh, called the athlete's gut that just came out. I talked to him about this. A, a lot of the GI distress that we can, uh, that we experience during ultra runs. Yes, it has to do with like food intolerance, but there's also some psychology that goes behind it as well. And if you're constantly thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm going to eat. My stomach's starting to turn south. Like that, that becomes a negative reinforcement loop that keeps rolling down this hill. That's hard to, to, to push it back up where, where you're fighting both physiology and psychology. And I would, I would extend that by saying that's where experience comes in, not just experience yeah. in training, but experience yeah. running races. Because yeah. you, you you know what to expect, you know what it feels like, you you know what's worked in the past, you know what hasn't worked. So it is a little bit of trial and error, especially in a sport that, that, that there's a lot we don't know about the science and the mechanisms of how the body responds. We're working on it, but there's there's a lot we there's an awful lot we don't know. So in this sport, perhaps more than most, where your gut can respond so unpredictably in some circumstances. It is a little bit trial and error, and having just having that experience gives you some confidence to go out there and and, and just kind of yeah see what happens and know that you can respond to it. Well, and to that point, you know, we give these ranges, and let's just use 150 calories an hour to 400 calories an hour, right? Is that is that the range that was cited in the paper? I flipped over that page. 150 calories an hour to 400 calories an hour. I th- there are a lot of circumstances where I'm going to have an athlete that can't even do 150 calories an hour. Let's just say it's 120. I would rather have them do 120 and be completely confident 
in that part in that plan. They've done it in training. They know it's rock solid. They know they can do it for hours and hours and hours. They know the different types of foodstuffs that they can take in. I would rather like violate some of that, some of the scientific uh, uh, consensus statement, right? Position paper that you wrote. I would rather violate that to a certain extent for for the added benefit of benefit of confidence as opposed to trying to force feed somebody into the range that they're not, that they're not necessarily going to be able to tolerate. Yeah. I'd, I'd support that. You know, the, these are, these are broad estimates based on yep. what we know, but to, to emphasize again, there's an awful lot we don't know. I, I think if somebody can only tolerate, you know, I, I know you, that was an example. I don't know if you ha- actually have an athlete like that. That's a, that's a very low intake, but if that, I works, do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's fair enough. I would, um, I would I would argue that perhaps that's something that perhaps that's psychological. Perhaps it's something that be, yeah. that can be trained. I don't know if yeah. they're able to to run for very long, sustained periods of time. But um, but hey, no, look, I I agree. You can't force somebody to do something that they're, they're not comfortable doing. Yeah, because I've been in the I've been I've been in the position where I've had very good athletes that can win races, win very high caliber races off of 200 calories an hour. And you would look at that and go, okay, we can get you even better if for whatever reason we bumped you up to 250. And we've tried to do that and failed and then gone back to 200 calories an hour. But the key in the whole equation is recognizing the opportunity early enough out testing it in training and then deciding if it's a positive or a negative where people go awry. We keep coming back to this time proposition of training is when they're trying to do it all in the last month of the race. Cause then you're just guessing cause you don't know what direction the arrow is going to go at that point. It could go up, it could go down, it could go sideways. But the, the point is, is we gave it enough time and training to kind of flush those things out. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And so what we did, we just moved it down to 200 calories an hour. That's the standard. We tried to move it. We tried to actually move it a couple times and, Hey, athletes winning races. Let's just like, let's just leave it at that. We still need to train it, still need to practice it, but we're not going to try to move out of that individual tolerance because we've already proven over multiple over multiple rounds that it's not compatible. It's super interesting. Um, okay, let's pivot really quick before we end up with a six hour podcast. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about calories. Absolutely, hundred percent. Uh, 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 an important thing, but I think something that's more important than calories in an ultra marathon context is actually hydration. In fact, a lot, in a lot of cases or in a lot of ways, you can make the argument that you can have the perfect requisite amount of calories coming in, but if your hydration strategy goes awry, those calories are not nearly as meaningful or meaningful at all. And Hydration has always been, it hasn't been contentious, but as a practitioner, I have been very frustrated with some of the standard recommendations that have come out over the course of my coaching career. And I'm going to stylize this really quickly through the lens of what the American College of Sports Medicine has recommended for athletes just in the last 20 years that I've been coaching, they have moved from uh, uh, hyd- from a hydration recommended uh, recommendation of drink as much as tolerable. That was when I first started coaching. That was their recommendation 18 years ago or something like that. Drink as much as tolerable to drink to thirst to now 
drink to thirst with these five caveats. And I, you know, I bang my head against the wall a little bit because I'm like, it's water. It's not water, but you know, I'm going to simplify it a little bit. It's water people. Like it's one of these fundamental elements that if we've changed it so radically over the course of not really that long of a period of time, what is it going to be five years from now? So it's starting to merge in ultras in the exact same way. It wasn't that long ago that high profile races like the Western States 100, they used to use body weight as a medical check to determine if athletes could continue. So you'd come into an aid station and if you were more than 8% below what you were when you weighed in the day before, before the race start, they would either not let you continue or they would just pull you for, or, or, or sorry, they would either hold you at the aid station or they would not let you continue. It'd be kind of a forced, uh, uh, forced, for, forced DNF. Now they since reversed that policy, and it actually turns out it's the opposite. Like we should be encouraging some amount of weight loss um, in, in an ultra marathon. But just to see that transpire in ultras, I use that as a story to 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 really demonstrate how something relatively simple like hydration can actually be really rather confounding confounding in, in, in the real world. So let's start, let's start with this very, let's start with the highest level possible in an ultra marathon race. Should athletes be gaining, trying to maintain or lose weight based on their hydration status? Like that big gross level, do we know enough about what to say about that? The reality is that athletes are going to become dehydrated in the same way that athletes are going to fail in completely offsetting their calorie expenditure. You're not going to be able to, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to consume enough fluid to completely offset dehydration. But the key of course is to mitigate it as much as possible. The research that's available, number one shows that the athletes that are more successful and that have more, more, successful race finishes tend to drink more and the, the more successful athletes follow hydration strategies. And, and I think that's the key. There are a lot of people who suggest that drink to thirst is a viable strategy and most likely in shorter duration exercise or exercise that's performed in thermoneutral environments, drink to thirst is viable. We can't say that it definitely doesn't work in ultra, but I don't think it's safe to, to start advocating drink to thirst in races that might last for 24 hours. Because again, just to, to reinforce this, the most successful athletes and the athletes who have more successful finishes in races tend to f follow a hydration strategy. So whether that's drinking a, a certain, um, number of mils or ounces relative to body weight or following strict guidelines. You know, for example, in the paper, we suggest drinking between 150 to 250 milliliters every 20 minutes. It does come down to a certain extent to, to tolerability, but drinking to thirst, I'm not a big fan of, especially because a lot of athletes take in their electrolytes in their fluid. So if you're drinking to thirst, there's a good chance that you're going to become deficient in one or more electrolytes, particularly sodium. 
And and what you're advocating for in the paper, and you can clarify this because uh, I'm sure there's a little bit of nuance to it, is drinking to an individualized schedule, meaning go, meaning throughout the process of training, figuring out what that schedule is going to be, not making up the schedule, I guess is what I'm getting at, right? Because you could make it up and totally be wrong, yeah. but figuring out what your hydration needs are in fact going to be on race day and 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 drinking to that. Now, one of the things that I don't want to get kind of lost in translation here is the most successful athletes drink the most. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to be drinking as much as possible because as we've seen from the earlier ACSM flip-flop that I just uh that I just pointed out, that can cause just as many problems, in fact more problems than uh than are worth and in fact that's the from a medical standpoint, which is different than a performance standpoint, but from a medical standpoint, one of the things that uh, all the medical directors are fearful uh, of now are having overhydrated hyponatremic cases coming in after an ultramarathon, which can be can be fatal. We've seen that in triathlon, and to my knowledge, I don't think we've seen that in ultra yet. Although I could, I, 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 I uh, could be mistaken. There might be cases out there that have not been reported. Um, but in triathlon, it's it certainly has happened. That's different than 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 what you're advocating. You're not advocating drink, drink, drink as much as possible. Let's figure out what a schedule actually looks like and go from there. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that because yes, you exactly. You want to be drinking enough to to mitigate as much as possible dehydration. What you must not do is take all too literally the advice of drink plenty of water. You know, we we see this advice banded around, particularly at marathons make sure you drink plenty of water and if it's hot drink more and then there's you know somebody will go off and drink 10 liters and end up uh, in hospital no so the point is you you want to in advance you want to figure out approximately what your individual sweat rate is we've mentioned you can do that by uh, measuring your body mass pre and post typical sessions seeing what your sweat rate is and then following typical guidelines to to, to try and offset your weight loss, which is going to come predominantly from fluid. Now, obviously, as you exercise more, you might become glycogen depleted, and 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 so you've got to take that into account as well. And we retain about two milliliters of water for every gram of carbohydrate that we that we uh, store in the muscles and liver. But when you take all of that into account, we need to be drinking enough to to offset dehydration as much as possible. That we've got to think about the consequences of dehydration here it's it's not just an exercise capacity thing so on, on the one hand when when we sweat we we lose fluid uh, and it's going to affect exercise capacity because the sweat has to come from somewhere but a lot of people often don't think where when when we increase our sweating rate during exercise the sweat actually comes from the blood so our blood volume is going to shrink when we become dehydrated and so that means your heart has to work harder to pump the same volume of blood around the body. So your exercise capacity or your exercise reserve, what we'll call your cardiac reserve, is going to diminish. So once you become dehydrated, your exercise capacity is going to suffer. The other thing to consider is that your cognitive function is going to suffer as well when you become dehydrated. That's a problem on any course that requires navigation. Anytime you're running over challenging terrain, so if it's a trail or or rocky trail or um, mountainous terrain, then you're going to increase your chance of um, 
rolling an ankle or getting or sustaining some other kind of injury. So we've got to try and do everything we can to mitigate dehydration. And before we go on to talk about hyponatremia, there are there are two kind of things to try and avoid. We want to try and avoid consuming excessive volumes of water because then we dilute the available sodium in our bodies. But we also want to try and avoid drinking fluid that doesn't contain any sodium at all because then it has a very similar effect. You dilute the available sodium in your body and that's when you get into problems. But if you can offset dehydration, maintain your electrolyte balance as much as possible, then you get you, then you get the uh, the balance right. Yeah, the the great sodium debate, as I always mention uh, with 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 our coaches, which has also gone through its similar phases. But let's stay around just the fluid parts of it a little bit. I, I know we we can't completely. Uh, on an, I, I know we can't completely disassociate fluid from electrolytes, but I want to I want to stay on this concept of you need to mitigate the amount of dehydration. That might not be complete. That statement might might not be completely analogous to we need to mitigate the amount of weight loss, and that's what a lot of athletes because we use this sweat test to find out how much you're actually sweating in an hour. In an ultramarathon, because it's so long, you're losing body you're losing body weight by other means, not just the sweat that's evaporating uh, off of your skin. And I think what that ha- what therefore happens is is it leads a lot of athletes to believe that they either need to replace a hundred percent of that weight loss. Or even more, and obviously more, we would we would call that a big no no. But what's starting what's starting to emerge that I want to get your take on is is it's it's likely not a hundred percent that we actually need to replace. It's something less than that, but we don't quite we don't really quite know is what I'm what I'm getting at, and that's something that I've personally been trying to put like a finger on the pulse a little bit better, and I haven't. I can't say that I fully flushed it out. So what what are your thoughts on that? If we go through a sweat test and let's just say that the conditions in the race are exactly like the condition, we have the perfect equation, right? Would we then would we then be able to translate that to, okay, you're losing 500 mils an hour in these conditions. We need to replace exactly that for a really long ultra. Can we extend it to that or does it need to be some fraction of that loss? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think if you've if you've got a pretty robust measure of your sweating rate, so let's say you've done a pre to post training session body mass measurement, maybe if you're really lucky, you've got access to a lab like we spoke about earlier, and you've done a sweat patch test, and you've you've actually calculated exactly yeah. what the sweating rate is. You want to try and match that as closely as possible, because what you've got to remember is that. Um, yes, there is a little bit of scope to become dehydrated. Okay, two percent dehydration not going to cause you a great deal of problem. Okay. You start getting performance decrements at about 2%, but it's not, it's not going to land you in hospital. You know, if if you lose 2% body mass, but unlike with energy intake, we've got a, we've got a large degree of uh, excess energy on our body. Even very, very lean athletes have many, many thousands, tens of thousands of calories stored as body fat. Even if you're six, 8% body fat, you've got a lot of energy reserve we don't have an awful lot of fluid reserve so once you start sweating for a long period of time particularly in much much longer again you've got to think about the duration of the race it's a six-hour race 
maybe even at 8, 10, 12 hour race, the consequences of chronic dehydration are much less severe than dehydration in a 24 hour race. There's much less maneuverability. So from my perspective, I'm going to want to try and match my fluid intake as much as possible. I think it's easier to do it with fluid than it is with food because water is, it should be relatively tasteless. And, and then, you know, I want to touch on, on something, um, some applied advice that we tried, I tried to crowbar into the paper. If, if you're drinking pure water, it's much easier because the water, it, it's relatively tasteless. And actually, it can offer a respite. If you're eating foods that are making you feel nauseated, sometimes water is, is the perfect antidote because it doesn't taste about, of, of anything. Sometimes you can get into problem if you're treating your water with flavorings to make it taste better or you're adding electrolytes to it because it, it makes the water taste different, makes it relatively less palatable over a very long period of time. One of the things that I that I experienced when I did Sahara, and again, this is slightly different because the ambient temperatures are so high, but I was adding electrolytes to my water in effervescent tabs. You know, you can plop the tab in your water and it fizzes up. Mm -hmm. And uh, okay, that's fine for a couple of hours, but it make, it gives the water this slightly kind of metallic-y salty taste because that you're literally adding salt to your water in very hot conditions yeah. temperature of your water increases so over the course of the the day and you're running for anywhere between six and 12 hours on, on any given stage you're trying to force this this salty tasting warm water down and it makes you feel sick inevitably you drink less of it so not only is your hydration going to suffer, but your electrolyte intake is going to suffer as well. And it's even more crucial in those kinds of conditions. So, you know, we've got to think about trying to keep the water relatively untreated if we can, unless you've got a foolproof, you know, bulletproof strategy to the contrary. So the water just tastes as neutral as possible. You're more likely to drink it. So what you would be advocating for is the, is getting your electrolytes from a different source as opposed to the, as opposed to the fluid and not trying to combine them, which is not what we see in sports drinks, right? Sports drinks are trying to deliver fuel, electrolytes, and fluid all at the same time. Fuel in the form of carbohydrates, electrolytes primarily in the form of sodium, and fluids obviously water is the, is the, is the, is the delivery mechanism for that. And you've got a, a ratio here, which I was quite pleased to see because it's one that um, that that we've used in practice here. It's, it's at least pretty close to one that we've used in practice here. That that you're that you need to be consuming 500 to 700 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid that you're actually consuming. And the way that I'm interpreting that is sodium from all sources, not just sodium from the fluid sources, it's sodium from the gels that you're taking in and the effervescent tablets that you're putting into your water or the, you know, the quesadilla that you ate or something like that. And that's, that's in order to maintain this electrolyte balance that is, that, that is critical because we really can't we really can't separate the fluid needs from the electrolyte needs completely we always have to think about them in concert yeah and, and this is where the scientific recommendations do sometimes clash with the with the realities and this is why one of the reasons i wanted to write this paper because all of the stuff that had come before had been written for the most part not always by people who had never run ultramarathon now i i don't know what it's like from your experience but 
I'm willing to bet that that most of the runners that you work with don't consume sports drink for the entire duration of the race because of the issues of palatability and changing uh, shifts in in taste preferences. So if you're relying on your on your electrolyte intake, or if you're if you're relying to get your electrolyte intake uh, on your on your fluid, if they if the two are, are kind of uh, intertwined, then you're going to run into problems if the, the fluid that you're drinking isn't palatable anymore. So one of the bits of advice that I managed to get into the paper, and again, this this hasn't really been studied, but it's, in, it's a nice kind of practical um, nugget of information, is try and keep your water relatively untreated so that it's as palatable as possible and get your electrolytes or your sodium in tablets that you can swallow whole. Now, there's a minor minority of people who can't take tablets, and I, un I understand that's an issue. And there's probably a minority of individuals who can consume electrolyte solutions for the entire duration of their ultra. But I, I think most people will get sick and tired of that flavor pretty quickly. So for me personally, I think it's just prudent to keep your water untreated, get your electrolytes from either tablets, sodium tablets or electrolyte tablets that you can take whole. Yes, take them at the same time, but then offset your sodium intake with the other sources of sodium that, that you're consuming. You're, you're creating your sports drink concoction in your body as opposed to in the bottle is essentially sure. what you're doing. Yeah. Well, you, I'm really glad that you brought this up because a lot of times in scientific papers, like the authors of these papers, they run the other way from including either their own experience or some piece of anecdote or some strategy that hasn't been studied in the literature as you've kind of alluded to. They do everything they can to not have these in there. So I'm appreciative of the fact that, as you said, you crowbarred it in there and I'm not sure how much pushback that you got from your fellow from your fellow co-authors, but I'm sure there, there was a little bit. Um, I honestly think that it's a little bit of personal preference. I mean, from a practical perspective, I have athletes that can't do sports drinks. And so, yeah, we have to figure out how to deliver electrolytes through other mechanisms. I do have other athletes that can tolerate a lighter sports drink for e over half the majority of even the longest of ultras. I don't have a lot of athletes, although there are people out there, I don't have a lot of athletes that can do all three in a sports drink, meaning they get their calories, their fluid, and their electrolytes all from that. You know, they, they're using they're using fluid for everything. There are drinks out there, uh, Goo Roctane, for example, that are intended to do that. They're intended to deliver all of the calories, all the sodium, and all the fluid in one you know convenient sports nutrition product. I don't think that that's as viable of a strategy in an ultra marathon uh, situation, because as we alluded to in when we were talking about calories, you need more options. You need savory options, you need sweet options, you need salty options, and also on the fluid side, I think that you also need high and low or no calorie options that you can go to. The proportion, and so great example, right? Water versus Coke. Water has no calories. Coke is going to have a lot of calories. It's a, it's a relatively dense source of calories for a fluid, at least. If you know that your body can tolerate those those things and you test them out in training, I like having those. Um, I like having those arrows in a quiver. More commonly, what we see in practice from 
from how to actually deliver this is this is this 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 strategy that my friend and my my colleague has coined. I, I don't know if she coined it, but she's the one that I've definitely heard it from the most. And that's to keep your calories in your pocket and your hydration in your bottle. This Stacy Sims, who I can attribute this to. You're doing that, except you're 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 keeping your hydration in your bottle. Your hydration and hydration being inclusive of electrolytes, not just fluid. Yeah, you're doing that, but you're just doing it in your stomach instead of putting it all in your bottle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's no downside to that from what I can see. As long as you are cognizant of getting enough fluid to offset dehydration as much as possible, getting enough electrolytes to make sure that you're not deficient, getting enough calories. It doesn't matter how you do it. I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a downside to that strategy. I think one of the contentions about the electrolyte literature, one of the arguments, if you like is that there is some emerging literature that suggests that maybe we don't need to supplement with, with electrolytes and actually taking sodium might over stimulate thirst, which can have the opposite effect. And to that, I would say, if you, you, you shouldn't be supplementing electrolytes just to supplement electrolytes. Are you getting enough sodium? And if you're getting enough, you're getting enough. It doesn't matter how you're getting it. So, and again, this is in the paper, you make sure that you take in enough sodium and enough electrolytes to make sure that you are not chronically deficient. So you've got to offset that against whatever food that you're taking in. We don't say supplement with tablets or supplement with electrolyte formulas. We say, make sure that you are meeting your sodium demands, whatever they may be. And this is a, a an approximate guideline of what you know, a ballpark figure of what it's likely to be. It doesn't matter how you get that in. And and the way that you're coming to the how much is there is per unit of fluid volume that could be adjusted based on temperature. Exactly. Because if it's hotter, your sweat rate will increase. You're going to need more fluid and you're going to need more electrolytes unless you're eating more salt in your food. Of course, it's always got to be offset. Yeah, but the the way that the recommendation is oriented, I think I think is extremely relevant. It's per unit of total fluid that you're taking in, 500 to 700 milligrams of sodium coming from all sources per unit of fluid that you have to take in. It's not 200 milligrams of sodium or whatever per hour. It's not an hourly rate. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant and you can join me if you want to. There, there are no sponsors of this podcast and nor will they ever will be And one of the biggest reason why I, w- I don't ever want sponsors is because I can go on these rants and because my guests can go on these rants and not be fearful of the consequences. <laughs> but it drives me crazy when I see supplement companies deliver sodium recommendations for endurance athletes as a unit of time, take in 200 milligrams of sodium per hour, take in 150 milligrams of sodium per hour, take these two pills of sodium supplementation per hour. Because I, I, I nobody has demonstrated to me what the relevance is of sodium per unit time. It's always per unit of sweat volume that you're that that you're sweating out so i don't am i completely missing the boat there am i like getting my panties all up in a wad for no reason or are you just as confused as those recommendations as i am no you're absolutely right a lot of the time it is it is take x amount per hour so sometimes depending on the on the product that you 
that you buy, it will tell you to, you know, dissolve one tablet in 500 ml of water, for example, and then consume hourly. But it, but even again, it's not recommended based on the on the specific scenario. It's got to be scenario specific, right? It's got to depend on your sweat rate. It's got to de depend on your your um, individual toler tolerances. But no, I agree with you. There's there's no there's no benefit in making those kind of very very vague recommendations. Uh, I don't think it helps anyone. And I think it just, if anything, it just muddies the water when it comes to trying to make scientific recommendations on this kind of topic. Yeah, I, I do think it's starting to fall out of favor because it used to be you came into an aid station and there were just a copious amount of electrolyte capsules on the table and people would just take them by the handfuls and shove them in their mouth. And I'm like, do you, do you have any idea how much sodium you just took in all at the same time? I, I'm starting to see that less and less, but still every once in a while I run around, I run, I run across a sodium product that says take two of these per hour. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're the amount of fluid that you're taking in just happens to equal that right ratio, then great. But that's not you know, you're just guessing that that's going to be the case. <laughs> um, and actually, if you look at the electrolyte content, particularly the sodium content of most sports drinks, it's at the very, very conservative end of the spectrum. It may not even be enough if you're just relying on those supplements. Yeah, but he here's, I actually think that that's smart. And here's why, because you're getting sodium from other sources. So if we're using this range of 500 milligrams of sodium to 700 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid that you need to take in, and your electrolyte drink has 500 or 400 or even 350 milligrams of sodium per liter, which is, which is, which is pretty common. I mean, you can look at like scratch labs is like, I think it's like 680 or something like that. But a lot of them are at, as you mentioned at the bottom or even kind of below that range. Once you take into account the sodium that you're getting from other sources, then you're good. But that's assuming you're not taking in plain water, which as you mentioned earlier, and I agree with you, there aren't a lot of people that can just go sports drink the entire time from a palatability perspective. They're going to include some water. So then you really need to be cognizant of the sodium that you're getting in from other sources. Yeah. And one of the things that that they'll be included in the paper, it's just table four, it's some example foods that are consumed by athletes. We did a, we did a kind of a little survey on a, on a bunch of experienced ultramarathon runners and just got an idea of the type of foods that, that they typically consume during races. And we assembled this, uh, this list of different foods and, and the typical macronutrient, micronutrient content and the sodium content as well. And some of these foods are just, they're packed full of sodium. Uh, you know, you've got, um, I'm just looking at some of the examples here, you know, salami sticks. So this is like, this is like, uh, I don't know what the, what the equivalent in the U S is, but it's like, um, like pepper armies over here, uh, yeah. uh, slim jims, yeah, yeah. I don't know beef if you're jerky. allowed to, slim jims, yeah, that's a good beef one. Jerky that's or a good one. like that. <laughs> there's, there's like in, uh, in a typical serving, there's like a gram of salt, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's an awful lot of salt in one serving. Uh, some uh, some sports drinks and energy gels are, are packed full of sodium. Uh, oat bars, 250 milligrams. We've got salted cashews, 200 milligrams. Olives have 300 milligrams of sodium uh, per 50 grams, so that's about a handful. So, yeah, the, the sodium that you're taking in always has to be offset against what, if, what you're taking in through foods. So you've got to look at this holistically. 
for sure. Yeah, and that's why that's why I go back to that exor- that inventory exercise because it teaches them how much fluid, how many calories, how much sodium, and then relevant to this conversation, how much so- the ratio of that sodium per unit of fluid that they're taking in. They just need to be educated about all of all of that and making sure that they're getting within these right ratios. I think the take-home message here is, as you mentioned, you can accomplish from a, from a hydration and, and, a, and a sodium perspective, you can accomplish these magic ratios through a few different ways. You can consume all water and then get sodium through your food and your sports nutrition products. You can have a sports nutrition. You can have a sports uh, electrolyte beverage that uh, that includes a lot of sodium. The means to those ends can be slightly different. But you have to be educated on how you're actually getting to that end. Yeah, agreed. I have nothing more okay. to that. <laughs> okay, good. We can end the great sodium debate there, but I'm sure it will continue to rage on. Three years from now, you're going to come back on this podcast and we'll be drinking to thirst again. <laughs> we will see. I could, There's another thing. I could go off on an hour, drink to thirst and ultra. Here's what I'll just say. Anybody who ever gives that recommendation, drink to thirst and ultra marathon, should go out and do bad water and see if that is relevant. Because if you run 135 miles across Death Valley in the searing heat with very little, little humidity, your capability of sensing thirst is completely messed up after that endeavor. And if you're relying on thirst, then good freaking luck. I think I, I would say, hey, I couldn't agree more. I would say after 12 hours of running, in a thermoneutral environment, right. your your yeah. your decision making abilities are gone. You could get after 24, 48 hours, you don't even know what day it is. You know, <laughs> to, 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 I think to allow such important decisions to kind of yeah. rest on on chance. Yeah, okay, I agree with you. Okay, Let, let's move on. There's this really fascinating area of alleviating GI distress. We've already, we mentioned earlier that this is a huge issue in ultras. It's the number one thing that uh, ultramarathoners cite as impacting their performance. It's the biggest reason people drop out is GI distress. What has, one of the things that has emerged is all of these different like old wives tales that have some sort of rooting and some, you know, bioplausible, bioplausible pathway or some sort of research pathway that they can alleviate GI distress. And they're everywhere. It's ginger, it's Tom's, it's take this, you know, super salty thing, eat chicken soup, you know, take in some chicken soup. You have your, I'm going to take a big bolus of calories to get rid of GI distress. You have, you have a, you have a section in here that very briefly addresses some of, some, some of the ways that, or some of the strategies that you can use to minimize GI distress. What can you tell, what can you tell us about that? All of these different strategies, is there any commonality that we can pull out of that for if an athlete does get a sour stomach, what could the remedy out from that be? Yeah. Well, I would say that if you're running a race of sufficient distance, particularly if, if the, the environmental temperatures are high, it's a matter of when, not if, for, for, in most cases. Um, so, so when you start to experience GI distress, your strategy will depend on what, what the underlying cause of the GI distress is. Now, if you're chronically calorie deficient and, you, and your blood sugar levels start to drop, which they may do, 
then, uh, you know, and you might get into a state of hypoglycemia, which is a blood glucose concentration of less than 3.5 millimoles per liter. It used to be 2.5. I might have got that the wrong way around, but, it, but it's low anyway. Then that can make you feel sick. That can cause this feeling of this, this nauseated feeling, in which case best strategy is to force some calories down. And, uh, and, and in most cases, that will help to raise your blood sugar level and alleviate the GI distress. Problem is, is that if there's a different mechanism that's underpinning your GI distress, which it, it's likely to be, enforcing calories down isn't necessarily the best way to go. So there's a couple of things at play here. Firstly, you are requiring an awful lot from your gut. So if, if you're consuming somewhere between, let's say, two and 400 calories per hour for a very long period of time, you're, you're requiring an awful lot from your gut, much more than you would on a day-to-day -day basis where you're, where you're kind of delivering a food bolus every, you know, three, four, five hours, and then you're resting. But if, if you're exercising, particularly if you're running, you're shaking, it's, there's a mechanical stress on the, on the stomach as well in the GI system. We know that running is much more likely to, to be associated with, um, with a degree of, of GI bleeding because of the impact forces. It's not, not so much to the extent that you need to worry about it, but you get a much greater turnover of what we call hemolysis, breakdown of red blood cells with running as opposed to any other non-impact sport. And with very prolonged exercise, and particularly exercise in hot and humid conditions, we get a redirection of blood flow, this redirection of cardiac output to the exercising muscles. And when that happens, the blood flow to the gut is restricted, this relative gut hypoperfusion. And when that happens, it means the gut's going to empty far more slowly. So anything that you eat is fine at the early stage of the race, but later on, anything that you eat it's going to sit and stew in the stomach and it's not going to empty as quickly. So you can keep eating your two to 400 calories per hour. There's a good chance it's just going to sit in the stomach and you're going to get this back up and it's going to make you feel sick. The other mechanism that's, that's very important to mention is, is something that we call leaky gut syndrome. This is when there's a, there's damage to the uh, intestinal border and we get a leakage of lipopolysaccharides or endotoxins into the blood. And, uh, and this in itself can cause feelings of sickness and, and upper GI distress. So when these things happen, then all you can really do is, is to slow your running pace and or ease your calorie intake. If you try and, if you try and maintain your running pace, then you're going to need to maintain your calorie intake. And that's not that's unlikely to be possible. That something has to give there, yeah. Particularly if it, if it's if your GI distress is related to one of these latter mechanisms. So the advice that we give in the paper is to is to either slow your running pace, or to ease your calorie intake for a short period of time, or both. And don't forget, if you if you reduce your calorie intake, there's only a certain period of time that you can can that you can continue at the same work rate. But, but sooner or later, something's going to have to give. I, I love the way that you position that because I was trying—I was trying to bait you a little bit into some of the, you know, butterscotch candies and ginger chews and stuff like that, which we all turn to, and those are fine. 
And I, I think that those those are throwing stuff against the wall types of strategies that maybe they work, maybe they don't. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence from runners around there for years that will swear by this, that, or the other. But your heavy hitter in the whole equation is to just slow down, reduce the output that you're asking of your body, perhaps get some of the redistribution of blood flow back into your GI system and see if that you can clear it out there. And then the other piece of that advice that the paper didn't go over, and I, I and, and this is just something, this is just a practical thing, is to, especially in hot environments, is to cool off. Because you're also sending blood to the surface of your skin to try to cool. And in the whole prioritization of things, your body's going to say, yeah, I'm going to stay cool versus digesting this food. And therefore, we're going to send blood to the surface of the skin in order to help that help that cooling process. And so very first, right off the bat, whenever we have athletes that are encountering GI distress during a race, it's slow down and cool off. Let's do that first. Then, because those are going to be the heavy hitters, those are going to be the all-stars. Now let's try any of the other things that you can, that you've heard and that you've, you know, that, that you've kind of pulled out from the old wives tales of marathoners of years of, 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 of years past. But if you're doing it in the opposite order, that's where I think things can start to go awry because you're just prolonging this GI agony that you've gotten yourself into. Yeah. And and exactly as you've said, one of, you know, being dehydrated can cause feelings of sickness and and to, and to mm-hmm. intersperse some you know some of my own practical experience with the heavy science in, in this 100 miler i did the previous year it got very very hot during the day it got well up above 30 degrees celsius so what's that um night this well up above 90 fahrenheit and uh i i got to a place where i was feeling very very nauseated it's about 60 65 miles into the race it was very hot i was feeling super sick wasn't eating wasn't drinking and that was very much a fork in the road moment. That was make or break. And because I have the experience and I also have a, an understanding of the, the mechanisms that underpin those sensations, I knew, as you said, I needed to get in the shade, I needed to stop running, and I needed to get some fluids because you, you can't start to address some of the bigger problems unless you, you fix the basic stuff. But forget about you know, ginger and turmeric and all of the other, you know, old wives tales that you want to throw into the equation. I'll tell you what, humans love to have simple solutions to complex problems. And we, we would sooner go after a, a clever supplement or a, or a magic herb or a, or a clever little gadget to fix the symptoms of something than actually go back to basics and, and try and get to the root cause of the problem. Because buying the ginger... Or, or taking a special supplement is easy. Throw a bit of money at the problem, it, you swallow the thing whole, and it, and it, fi- it f- fixes all your problems. But to actually go back and to think, okay, how much fluid have I been taking in? What have I been eating? Is my carbohydrate too concentrated? Is my work rate too high? This is all very complicated, and, and you know, it takes a little yep. bit of uh, effort. But these are the these are the heavy hitters. These are the things you've got to think about first. Yep. I, lo- I love the way to th- I love the way to think about that. Like, think about the heavy hitters first. If you do get into a spot of bother, I'll use a UK term, British term there. If you get into a spot of bother, I will spare everybody with, the, with my terrible dialect that I could come up with. If you get into a spot of bother, 
pick the heavy hitters first, slow down, cool off. And then if you want to lay off, layer on any of the other stuff, great, but don't do it. Don't do it despite the big heavy hitters. Cause those could really pull you out of a pull. Well, you people out of a are reluctant to, to slow down, particularly if they're on for a certain time or they I want know. a podium. Yeah, they I think know. if I slow I down, then I'm going to be giving up valuable minutes, but actually in the long term, it's going to serve you better. Uh, particularly, you know, if if it's the difference between slowing down and finishing, or continue to push the pace in hot conditions, and flake out at mile eighty, you know, you've got to think about what's best for your performance here. Well, but also, I, I bring this up to my athletes a lot. The time that you spend slowing down or regrouping in an aid station, it doesn't evaporate. Sure, we would love to like fly through all the aid stations and have nothing happen and things like that. But if you take the time during an ultra and slow down by a minute per mile or 90 seconds per mile for 10 kilometers or something like that, that time that you've lost doesn't kind of go into thin air because you then have more resources that you can apply later on down the line. You might be able and you should be able to run faster a little bit uh, a little bit later down the line. And we all know this from interval training, right? This is why we do interval training is we break up work into smaller sections and we can handle higher intensity. It's the same thing when we're troubleshooting things out on the trails is we get caught up in the, oh my gosh, I can't spend the next, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes or five minutes bringing my intensity down because I've then lost that equal amount of time. It's a one for one loss. The reality is, is you get not all of it, but you get some of it back on the back end of that because you've just gone easier and you've been able to regroup. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that there aren't nutritional causes of GI distress. You know, if, if you, if you right. consume carbohydrates that are too concentrated or, uh, or if you consume too, too many calories in one go and it's going to be difficult to digest, all of these things can cause GI distress, but these are things that you should have addressed hopefully earlier on and, uh, and figured out throughout the course of, the, of your training, the things that you can't predict to a certain extent, is to what extent your gut is going to shut down during a race because of the environmental conditions. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's move on. The so the very last part of the paper and you're you're going to hate me for this cuz I know you probably spent a whole lot of time on it. I'm going to ask you to summarize it as quickly as possible. <laughs> We're running on a 3-hour podcast at this point, which is fine. It's awesome stuff. It but the this, the last this is not not unusual to me. So <laughs> No, 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 it's great. I mean, you, you know, we, we, the listeners won't know this, but we'll explain it now. We've spent a lot of emails back and forth trying to get this thing just off the ground with the COVID-19 pandemic. We were supposed to meet in person and then that kind of fell through. And then, you know, you can't even come back to the United States. So we've like settled on, we're going to do this remotely. So maybe I'm just taking advantage of the opportunity here now and, and keeping you for as long as possible. But there's a good section. There's several good sections at the end that cover supplements and other things that you can, uh, that, that ultra marathoners have, have, have been known to take in. And it ranges from caffeine to medium chain triglycerides. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's taken back to like triathlon in the 1990s. It was really big. MCTs were really big back then. MCTs, ketone esters, vitamins and minerals, and you even get into L-glutamine and some uh, NSAIDs, some uh, analgesics and uh, anti-inflammatories. Why don't we try to take like a big rocks approach 
to that entire section, what are what are the what are the bigger things that are going to have an impact in an athlete's race performance out of that whole scope of things? And then what are some of the things that athletes may need to actually avoid because there are negative outcomes uh, for taking them in? So when when I originally wrote wrote the the first draft of the paper, that section contained paragraphs on caffeine, protein, and analgesics. And, and NSAIDs, but, you know, we, we, we talk about how NSAIDs are really absolutely shouldn't take NSAIDs because they, they're overstressed. The renal system can cause a lot of, uh, can cause kidney dysfunction, particularly on a renal system, which is overloaded during ultramarathon anyway. So we, we, we cannot stress strongly enough how important it is to avoid non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs during an ultramarathon. But initially, the only things that I spoke about were caffeine, protein, and, and painkillers. Because none of the other things really, there's there's no research to really support the use of medium chain triglycerides. Uh, you, you shouldn't really need uh, antioxidants and things like this, um, especially if you're eating normal food. So I'll I'll just pick out the the, the sort of the evidence based the uh, the data driven stuff and touch upon each of them briefly. So so caffeine we know is a very powerful stimulant. It's been shown in all these in a number of different sports to have very potent performance enhancing effects through a couple of different mechanisms. The main one in ultramarathon is, is the stimulant properties of caffeine. So if you're, if you're competing in a very long duration ultra that's requiring you to run a night stage, you know, so, so you're running for more than 12 hours and you're going to be running in the dark, then caffeine can, if taken in very small doses, can prove to be quite beneficial to, to your performance. Uh, all I can say here is, is just read the paper before you start. I don't want you to, to, to okay, well, Nick Tiller said on the podcast I should take caffeine, therefore. Uh, I, I All of my recommendations are on the caveat of read the recommendations in the paper because we thought long and hard about how to make those recommendations with a whole bunch of different caveats. It depends on how habituated you are to caffeine, how sensitive you are to caffeine. If you take too much of it, it can have very serious and very harmful side effects. So be very, very conservative with your caffeine intake. But the chances are uh, you'll already know if you're sensitive to caffeine and, and you'll, you know, if, you, if you're going to use caffeine, you'll have used it before now. So that's the first thing to mention. Uh, the, the second thing is protein supplements may be necessary if you're not getting an adequate source of protein through your food. And again, this is dependent on whether you are consuming foods solely from checkpoints if you're taking your own food but using protein supplements might be an effective way to ensure you're meeting your, your protein requirements that sort of 20 grams every three to four hours should be in a, a rough target and supplementing with leucine or amino acids might be a valid means of of uh, of, of getting those meeting those targets the only other thing to touch upon very briefly, and it, it goes back to what I was saying about non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs. While NSAIDs should absolutely be avoided, there might be some instances where athletes will opt to take analgesics, to so painkillers. And they're not really considered performance enhancing, it's more performance enabling because it can mask symptoms of pain and, and discomfort. But again, read the paper because we stress very clearly that symptom masking can get you into a whole lot of problems as well. If you're experiencing pain in the body, there's a reason you're experiencing pain. It's because something's not quite right. 
So if you're using painkillers to mask those symptoms, particularly in a long duration ultra, that can get you into trouble. But, um, you know, I'm not going to patronize some very experienced ultra marathon runners who might be listening, who have probably been using painkillers for years. But just think very carefully about your motives for taking them, the reasons why you might take them. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do it, do it very conservatively with all of the aforementioned caveats. So I take a little bit more of a hardline approach with NSAIDs. And if I find them in my athletes drop bags, I'll just throw them away because I don't want it on, I don't, I don't want it on my conscious. Um, I do, I do know athletes still continue to use them despite all the warnings, but I do, I, I like the way that you position this in the paper is that they're not performance enhancing, enhancing, wow. but they may be performance enabling. I always take it as a one up, 10 down. You might to use your vocabulary. You might be able to enable performance by just a smidge more by masking pain. But the 10 down is you could die. You could get thrown in the hospital with an acute kidney injury, renal failure, and you could either have severe lifelong consequences because of that, or you could actually die. So I don't think that that's a, I don't think that that's a good risk reward proposition at all. You know, we know that ultra marathon, ultra endurance exercise puts additional strain on the renal system and NSAIDs do exactly the same thing. They cause all sorts of renal, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal problems. There is the suggestion that it can also inhibit the absorption of sodium through the gut, it can cause all sorts of health problems. I think it's worth uh, distinguishing between analgesics and NSAIDs. So while NSAIDs are absolutely should be prohibited because of all of these potential side effects. Painkillers, so normal analgesics, so, um, you know, Tylenol or in the UK it's paracetamol. These, these are a little bit more forgivable. I still wouldn't advocate them because masking pain can have implications of, of, of its own. But, um, but, but N says that there's no way that that, that that can be justified under any circumstance. All right, man, weird. This you win, Nick. So if I had a prize for coolest, longest, whatever podcast, you get it. And we knew it was going to be that way from the get go, man. I, I, like I said, I really like your paper. Um, I've, you know, read, read, I've written a summary article for our lay audience, uh, on this paper. What would that be considered? It's like, a position stand of the position stand or something like that a summary of the position stand abridged version oh man but i can't i can't do it justice but i hope we did it justice for the last three hours of this podcast it is a really incredible piece of work i do hope that we continue to to get to read more from you on the physiology side as you alluded to earlier that's going to be fascinating i had no idea that might be coming down the pipes i will eagerly look forward to uh reading that um, before we let you go, what are the big nuggets, man? Like this is a lot to digest all pun intended. Um, but there are some things that I think we can kind of summarize into the last couple minutes of this uh, podcast as it pertains to the nutrition for, I'm going to use the title nutrition considerations for single stage ultra marathon training and racing. What are the big takeaways? I guess if you want uh, a super condensed version then you know we start the, the the abstract of the paper has ten points that we kind of summarize all the different sections. So you know I, I'd uh, if 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 listeners are not going to go and read the paper for themselves, 
I'd suggest reading your summary because you did a you did a fantastic job of covering all of the important points um, in a much more kind of uh, uh, digestible fashion. Um, if if that's too much for you, then then read the ten point summary on the in the abstract of the paper. But I guess to boil it down, you know, I think in ultra marathon more than any other sport, perhaps we've got to do what we can to assimilate the scientific arguments and learn as much as we can from the scientific research that's being done because there's a lot of it now coming out some really good some really good work but also to integrate that with you know the applied approach and individualization because every athlete is different particularly in ultra i can't stress this enough there are so many unknowns and that the body can respond in so many unusual unexpected ways during any given ultra so it's about listening to your body and knowing your body and getting some experience as well, but being open-minded to both the science and the applied approach and trying to integrate them as much as you can. I'd say that for me, if you, if you boil it down, that's kind of the, the take-home message. Yeah, that's beautiful. Perfect. We, we're going to have uh, obviously a link to the paper in the show notes, but we'll also have links to where to find you and where to find some of the other associated research that we uh, pulled out uh, in this particular podcast. Where can people find you and find some of the work that you're doing, either on social media or on the web? Yeah, so you can uh, find out more about the work I'm doing at uh, nbtiller.com. That's my website. There's... Um, everything you need to know is on there or you can follow me on twitter at nbtiller and i tweet about science and critical thinking and ultra marathon and all the stuff i'm interested in awesome man well i hope the listeners uh check it out this is a you, you've just been an incredible resource here i always appreciate it when researchers in the field that also have a little bit of skin in the game like you do being an ultra marathon yourself can combine these research and these practical things to down to the level of the athlete because that is that that's a skill that not everybody has and it's actually the one that's the most practical for people so really appreciate your work thank you for what you do i'm sure we'll have you on for another five-hour episode of the podcast we'll have to bring in a few uh carbohydrate supplements to just to get through that one but appreciate your time man well I, we'll have to go for the record next time but look, i had a great time so thanks for having me and there you have it folks holy cow that was epic i hope everybody got a tremendous amount out of that podcast with my friend Nick Tiller. I hope he makes his way back to the States here sooner rather than later and we can share a beer and share a run together and talk more about nutrition if you guys cannot tell by listening. He is extremely passionate and enthusiastic about this being a trail runner himself and I think it's awesome that we have those types of people in the space that can do the research side but also can practice what they preach out there on the trails. So Thank you to Nick. All of the research that we referenced in this particular episode are in the show notes. If you want to do a deeper dive into that, go ahead and check it out. All of the links to find Nick are also in the show notes. If you want to go and follow him, go ahead and check the show notes out. Thank you again to Michael Carson for all the editing and post-production work that you do on this podcast. Thank you to the listeners. Appreciate the heck out of all of you. If you have not had the time or the chance, head on over to iTunes. Give this podcast a rating or a review. Helps the podcast out a tremendous amount. 
We will see you guys out on the trails eventually. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, keep training people, enjoy yourselves. We will see you on the other side.